Hello, friends. This is David Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 36, The Tim Spiker Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Tim, thanks for being here today, brother. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. We had a little bit of technical difficulty, ladies and gentlemen. So if you're hearing this cleanly, that means we overcame already. <laughs> and that's what this episode's about. Uh, Tim Spiker is the president and founder and CEO of The Aperio. He is also the author of The Who Not What Principle, a research-based truth that's powered 15 years of leadership development success. He's got a book, The Only Leaders Worth Following, and it reveals that 77% of leadership effectiveness comes from who a leader is and not what they do. And using this principle throughout life, Tim has helped people be and stay leaders who are actually worth following. So I am super excited to talk to Tim today. Before we do, though, I just want to put a big, giant, warm thank you to you, our listeners. North America, you're killing it. I mean, week after week, the amount of listens just warms me and humbles me and makes me feel so happy and thankful. So I appreciate you listening and sharing and rating the podcast and reviewing it and telling your friends and family about it, because it's really helping. Thank you. And to our friends overseas, three countries that stuck out this week, India, 42, Philippines, 125, and Belgium. I can't remember, but we were in the top 50. Thank you, guys. In the personal development self-help sections, you guys are killing it out there. Thank you for loving the podcast, enjoying the podcast, and telling your friends and family about it. Also, two special shout-outs. On Apple Podcasts, we had AOI by Design, a truly A-plus podcast. Thank you, AOI by Design. Next, A. Freeman Event said, best of the best. Shining a light on what makes each guest's journey remarkable and then helping others to see the universal message is what sets David apart from other hosts and this show apart from other podcasts. Simply the best. Wow. Thank you, A. Freeman Events. I really, man, those are such kind words. Thank you. Next, stickers. Let's stick together. No, we got these really cool stickers. They just say the Remarkable People Podcast. Show the cover. Hashtag live remarkable. Just little reminders. Got them on my cars, hand them out to people at drive through say, hey, you like podcasts? Check it out. Just little reminders to keep us motivated, to keep us making the best choices, to listen to this stuff, to do it, to repeat it, and to enjoy a great life together with each other and God. So if you want a free sticker, reach out to me on the website. We'll send you some. If you want extra to hand out, stick all over the cars, the, the notebooks, the helmets, the bike, your locker at the gym, man, just let me know and we'll get them to you, okay? Next, last but not least, at the conclusion of this episode, our very own intern Casey is going to give you a teaser of what's coming next week. So he's going to take 30 to 60 seconds each week, 
let you know what you have to expect in the coming week, and it's something you can really hopefully enjoy. So at the end of this episode with Tim, hang out for another 30 seconds and listen to intern Casey tell you what's next. But at this time, you don't want to hear my voice. Let's hear Tim. He's got a remarkable story. This podcast has his story in the first half, and then the second half, amazing and sound leadership principles and ways we can develop ourselves. that's real, it's needed, and it's something we can all use. You don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to be a coach. You just need to be you. So he's going to talk about qualities that make up a leader and how we can grow these and how we can develop ourselves. And we can not only become great leaders, but we can stay great leaders worth following. So at this time, let's hear from our friend, Tim Spiker. Tim, at this time, we're going to kind of roll the mic over to you. How the show format normally works is you tell your story, you pick the highs and the lows of your life that you want to share, give the listeners a practical steps of what you overcame and how you did it. Then we'll transition to where you are today and how me and the listeners can help you and continue to help each other grow. So at this time, Tim, let's share your story, brother. All right. Well, I grew up in a family that was very athletically oriented, um, which shouldn't be confused with actually having athletic ability, just an interest in sports that, run, <laughs> that runs pretty deep. Uh, my father worked on the uh, sideline with the West Virginia University football team and athletic department for 40 years. And uh, we're all, 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 we're all very proud of him. He recently got inducted to the Hall of Fame there with the with the university, which was a, which is a neat milestone. But we, yeah, oh, that's huge! Congratulations! Yeah, yeah. so I've got some great role models um, uh, between him and my mother. Uh, some great role models in a number of different ways. But we grew up. I grew up hanging around the football stadium. Um, you know, when I was eight years old, I fell into a whirlpool in the training room, <laughs> and somebody had to fish me out of it. So the the whole athletic world was just a normal part of our existence. But I was also super fortunate in that um, my folks were very focused on education and th- th- there was never this this versus that. It had to be a both and. And so just got a chance to grow up in a really, um, in a really stable, blessed environment, honestly. I know a lot of people have incredible stories where they overcame um, unbelievable hardships. I mean, we're recording this here just after the 4th of July holiday. And it seems to me that that there's an awful lot of people that are obsessed with Alexander Hamilton right now after the release of Hamilton on Disney Plus over the weekend. And his obstacles are just, they're almost unspeakable to think what he overcame to do. And I feel like in many ways, gosh, I have the exact opposite story. I had every um, every opportunity, every encouragement towards education, every support along the way and just feel really blessed how honestly that's, you know, that's shaping me as a parent right now because I want to be able to provide some of those same things for my own kids, not because they have to be upwardly mobile, but because I want to help them be who they were created to be. Yeah. And that's a great point you make right off the bat because there's people who come from horrific backgrounds, but there's no excuse. They adapt, they overcome and they move forward. And there's people who come from privileged backgrounds and they totally make a mess of their life. So you're <laughs> they being figure out a way totally, to screw it up. 
Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm listening to you. You know, the background adds that character to who we are. And you're talking solely, you know, about leadership, really. Your focus is leadership. Mm-hmm. But it's true that you appreciate and you have the gratitude for the blessing and the background you had. But that doesn't make or break your success. So I'm super excited and thankful for you. Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate that. I mean, I do feel incredibly blessed. And I think there's a responsibility that that comes with that. And certainly there are moments in my life when I when I haven't always lived up to all of the things that I was, uh, you know, blessed to be given. But you try to take take steps forward in all those blessings every day so that you can um really fulfill the purpose that you have. And and today that happens to be in leadership. Of course, when I was younger, I was just trying to figure out what I was going to put my, put my shoulder to, but uh, it's turned out to be leadership. Beautiful, beautiful. So take us from there. You're going through childhood. Yeah. You got a good stable background mm-hmm. and upbringing. You go off to college, I take it. Did you go from high school to college in the traditional route? No, not, not exactly. And uh, you know, okay. part, part of my story has to do with um, <laughs> you know, I look back on it now and you think, it, gosh, it's a good thing I didn't know what I know now, or I might have thought that I couldn't do what I ended up doing. <laughs> Meaning there's the, <laughs> it's sometimes, honestly, I mean, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> sometimes it's good to, to not have perspective, especially if that perspective is going to limit what you're going to try to do. So, Somewhere along the line in high school, probably my my junior year, sophomore, junior year, I really started to think that I wanted to be a collegiate basketball player and really was was not yet a collegiate caliber <laughs> basketball player. But somehow that didn't stop me from dreaming. And I think, you know, I think in that space, again, I'm going to come back to my parents my dad every day is working with division one athletes. And for those folks who have been around that world, it it is hard to have an appreciation for how talented some of these athletes are, uh, unless you're literally standing on a court or a field right next to them. It it looks, it's different on television. I'll say that it's real different. I mean, it's entertaining on television and we put our hearts out there for the teams that we love, but the sheer athleticism of some of these some of these uh, young men and young women in the collegiate ranks, especially at the Division One level, is pretty is pretty remarkable. And if I ever had an idea that I could compete at that level, it was because of ignorance. <laughs> it really, even though even though I was around it, and it, it, it wasn't ignorance that I didn't understand it because my father's job, I was around it a lot. But somehow, I had a belief that kind of defied reality because I was just not that good. I was just not that caliber of athlete. And so where my, where my route diverted a little bit is I continue to have um, a passion about two things. One was basketball and the other was engineering. I decided that this was the course of study that I wanted to take. And when I, when I finished up high school, I had a few small division three schools interested in me playing basketball for them. Uh, but none of them were good engineering schools. <laughs> and so I had a I had a choice to make, um, and thankfully, and again, my parents come into the picture again. They were willing to to help fund, um, but I went a non traditional route and I took what's called a postgraduate year, and so it's a year in between high school and college. At the time, 
a number of athletes who did not have high enough SAT scores who would be considered people who have to go back in time a little bit, something called Prop 48, where you weren't allowed to compete as a freshman if you didn't have a certain SAT score. So there was a whole basketball league, uh, primarily up in New England, a little bit down in the Virginia area as well, where you've got postgraduate basketball players where every single player on every team is going to go on and play in college somewhere. But for whatever reason, whether working on SATs or me just working on getting bigger and stronger and, and faster to try to compete, you go and take that year at, at prep schools, how it's normally referred to. And that was the path. So I went to Brewster Academy in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. And I spent the entire year getting my tail kicked. I mean, I was, there were some nights, I'm sure, I'm sure some of my teammates, if they were on this, they're like, yeah, I remember you getting your tail kicked. <laughs> um, it was a tough year. It was one of the hardest years of my very blessed life. So that may not be saying much, but it was a challenge because I was playing above, you know, every time I lined up across from somebody that whole year. I was going against somebody who was meaningfully better than I was. And uh, that was a challenge. And um, but as as many people will have an experience, whether it be in sports or the arts, if you're consistently put in spaces where the people around you are better than you are, and in often cases, that's going to pull you up. That's going to change your standard of what good and not good is. And if you really have a passion for it, that's going to lead you to a better place. You may never get to that spot where those other folks are, but you're going to get better than where you would have been if you hadn't had that opportunity. So I am eternally thankful for that year at Brewster. Uh, we had a pretty mediocre year as a team, unfortunately, but we had a lot of guys who who cared a lot. And I've even been in contact with some of those guys uh, through social media, even within, I mean, I'm 48 now, that was 30 years ago. And we still remember specific games. We still remember like, Hey, I remember that night. Uh, one of my teammates was, was putting something online and I'm like, I remember that night. And that was a heartbreaker. Um, specifically my guy hit the winning shot after we had a huge comeback. And I said, you know, don't put the end of that game up because I'll have to go to a therapist if I see it again. But <laughs> those, those things are meaningful and shaping and thankfully had great, great coaches along the way. And so, that year at prep school really was a time to help me be a, a much better player than I, than I ever would have been without it. Before you go on, let's talk about something because you have a great holistic view of a balanced life and leader. And you just made a key point. We have listeners from 58 countries, but our primary base is America okay. and North America. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter who you are or what background you said how by putting you into the fire and by playing up, you got your butt kicked every day. Yes. But that grew you incredibly as a man. Talk about the adverse of that, the opposite of that. Because there's a lot of people who are the fast guy in the slow reading group and they feel good about themselves. Like, yeah, I'm doing great, but they're sandbagging. Mm -hmm. When you're around greatness, you become great. But what happens when you're around slackness? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of really smart people out there that talk about uh, the concept, and I I'm going to do this right now. If I could remember exactly where it came from, I would want to give due credit. But right now, it's eluding me. But the concept is, you can tell a lot about where you're going or where you're going to end up based on the books you read and the people you hang out with. And ultimately, in this case, uh, as we're talking about people you hang out with being in the athletic space is like, am I, am I 
am I around people who are better than I am? Because they will, they will pull me in that direction. Again, you know, I mentioned that you got to have a passion for it because if you're not passionate about it, the third time you get your tail kicked, you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to go do something else. And, and that's fair because maybe that's not your thing. Maybe that's, you know, it's okay to, you know, I wouldn't look at somebody and say, well, you didn't stick with it. Therefore, you don't deserve it. I would say, you know, maybe you weren't called to that. Maybe you weren't built for that. And you had to go through that experience to figure that out. So it's not automatic that you get your tail kicked and you get better. You have to have a passion to stick with it. But if you do have the passion to stick with it, I think it's really important to talk about those difficult, you know, to look at those difficult moments and see them as fuel. Uh, And I don't even, you know, some people are motivated by the person who says that they can't do it. I mean, I hear that in sports all the time. You know, they didn't, they didn't draft me until the third round and I want to show all those other teams. That's great. That works for a lot of people. That doesn't work for me. Uh, I'm actually more of a person that's more on the positive reinforcement side of things. Um, And so, you know, in those circumstances, because that's the way I'm built, that can be really challenging because sometimes there wasn't that much positive to point out. It's like, well, I didn't foul yeah. out. I didn't foul out. Is that the best thing I did in this game? I didn't foul out. That's not a very <laughs> that's not a very positive. So there's a lot of mental fortitude that can be built in those times. And it's fortunate when you have uh, when you do have coaches that can help you see the positives even when they're hard for you to see. And as I as I moved along later in my career, um, I never played for coach. I played for great coaches, but I never played for that kind of happy coach that just told you you were awesome all the time. <laughs> um, there was always a lot of critical feedback, but but not just in sports, but in in the arts too. You know, you you also have to you know part of that process is learning to take criticism, and uh, you have to look at people who are criticizing you and understand that in the you know in the best case scenario they love you and they're trying to help you. Um, now, sure, there are some coaches or there are some teachers in the arts that might be uh, getting on you because it's more about their ego than it is helping you out. And you want to kind of discern between the two of those things. But for the most part, as I moved into uh, prep school and into college, I got a chance to play for people whose criticism of my play was definitely out of wanting to help me be better. And, and keeping that in mind is, uh, is really important, I think, especially when things are difficult and things are tough. Yeah, and that is true. I always wondered that. What do you think? Is it how we're made and born? Because like for me, I like to be, if I'm playing even racquetball with my friends, I'm just not a competitive dude. I'm competitive <laughs> against myself. But yeah. if there's that jerk who's arrogant, it doesn't <laughs> matter if he's a novice or if he's a pro, I will play at that level. <laughs> so I like the negative reinforcement and you like the positive reinforcement. Do you think we're born that way or is that learned? Mm. I think there is something to I think there is something to how you're born with regard to that. But, you know, there's very we ask this nature versus nurture question in a lot of places. And we and I get asked it in leadership all the time. And I think it's very rare that we stumble across and the answer is only one thing or the other. Um, very often it's a, it's a combination to some degree. Um, but here's the thing, like I, I thrived more off of positive reinforcement, but I'm very competitive. (laughs) So, you know, even, even without the negative reinforcement, um, you know, if my other family members would have some things to say about this, my brother's a college basketball coach. Uh, he's the, he's the head coach, uh, currently at Drexel university. And he, he spent seven years as the head coach at, at army United States uh, military Academy. And, uh, 
he usually says that I'm more competitive than he is and his livelihood is based on <laughs> based on wins and losses but we would all tell you, we would all tell you this we would all tell you that our mother is the most competitive person in the family and there's nice. there's a whole lot so there 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 are some things that get passed down whether through genetics or through observation but um she's the most competitive person in the family and i definitely i think there's some resilience that comes along with that um and my my mother is extremely resourceful um no matter what in life we needed she would figure out a way and i think that carries over to us i mean one of the things as an athlete that's important is it's important to not spend time thinking about what's going wrong. You have to orient your mind towards, okay, we might be getting, maybe we're down by 20, but I need to be thinking how we can be down by 18 or 15. uh, So I can start to chip away at that. Um, And I think that resourceful mindset, which says there's always a way you can always make a way. What's the next thing you need to do. I think that that's something that I got from my mother in addition to her, her, competitiveness, which is displayed. Um, just if you're going to play cards with her, just keep that in mind before you start. So you want to know that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. Now, was it your mom, dad, you brother, do you have any other siblings? Yep. I have an older sister, um, who's a couple years older than me. So, um, you know, the three of us growing up, you know, sports was, as we're talking about this, it, it was really a way of life for us because of my father's job. Um, you know, the, the hours of somebody who works in the medical profession related to sports, not to say that the athletes and the coaches don't put in crazy hours because they do, but the medical staff is there before practice to treat the players. They're there during practice to take care of injuries and they're there to treat people afterwards. And so, you know, my father had pretty, pretty amazing number of hours put in and, you know, the way my mother approached it was this is the whole family's in on this. And so I say that, you know, my daughter, my father's job opened the door to my love of athletics, but my mother's attitude about all of it, it, it pushed us through that. It made us sprint through that door. It allowed us to sprint through that door because she was so supportive of my father and uh, was understood that some of the uh, challenges and sacrifices, I mean, he did not have a nine to five job. And yet I would also tell you, I can't remember a single significant event in my childhood where he wasn't present. So it wasn't the uh, workaholic story where my dad was never around. It was that he figured out a way to do it. And, and, you know, I've got four kids now. I don't know how he did it. I have no, I mean, it is a mystery to me how he was able (laughs) to do everything that he did. And, but my mother was, was equally a huge part of how that worked out for us. Yeah, it sounds like your family's the epitome of the the saying, you know, behind every great man's a great woman. Well, that's and true. And they just balanced it out and helped each other. And they, like you said, they found a way. Yeah. They worked together, yeah. equally yoked. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome, bro. So you take off, you're in this league for a year. Yeah. And then you go to college now to pick up the story there. Yeah. So um, at that point, there were opportunities. I mean, and I didn't have a bunch of scholarship opportunities coming at me, but I had a dream. And, you know, I, for whatever reason, uh, Purdue University had gotten my attention uh, from a basketball standpoint, and, and they have a great engineering school there. And They so, do have a great engineering program. Yeah. So I was just, you know, okay, I've got these schools that are interested in me. And now I had Division three schools, which is a non-scholarship version. I had 
some good engineering schools interested in me at the division three level. And so now my decision was, do you, do you want to take a chance? Cause you know, what if you go to try to, you know, I was going to be a walk on. So it's a guy who's not on scholarship. Do you go try to play basketball at a division one school in this case, Purdue? What if you don't make the team? You know, what happens? You've put so much time and energy into this. How will you feel if that happens? And for me, it was, it actually turned out to be, what if you don't do it? What if you don't try? You're going to have the question the rest of your life. Could I have made it? Could I have been a part of it? And so I just told myself, look, if it doesn't work out and you're dying because you're not getting to play basketball, you can always transfer <laughs> somewhere else, transfer down to division two or division three level and play. Um, but probably the only opportunity to give it a shot is right now. And so, so he took a shot um, and, and did all the things that I needed to do, sent the tapes in, followed up with phone calls, went out to Purdue at basketball camp during the summer after my, after my prep school year. And nobody's promising me a spot on the team. They're saying, Hey, you can come play with the team. Uh, fortunately that prep league has enough reputation that probably got me a chance to play pickup with the guys in the summer that I might not have had otherwise. But every time you're out there, you're very aware, like, I'm going to try out. I'm going to try out right now. I'm not on this team. And uh, fortunately for me, there's a lot of stories in college basketball about the walk-on tryout where they basically have, you know, two or three mornings in August or September Everybody in school that wants to play on the team that's not on scholarship can come out. You probably, I mean, it's Indiana. So in Indiana, this is a basketball crazy state. You probably have 30, <laughs> 30 guys that will come out. Again here, uh, just very blessed that I didn't have that situation. Because I think you know, for the position I play, the size that I am, I would not have stood out in one of those kinds of trials. I'm not particularly athletic, but I understood the game. And I understood what I needed to do. And the issue with me is not being that individually talented. If I didn't play with guys who understood their roles and what they're doing, I wouldn't look very good. I mean, I'm much more of a organized, uh, distribute the ball kind of guy. I'm not going to dunk over anybody. I'm not going to make these unbelievably athletic plays. So, you know, in a walk on tryout situation, I, I don't think I would have stood out at all, but fortunately, uh, because of some Brewster, because of going to Brewster and some other relationships there, um, I think I had an opportunity. And so what that gave me was 10 days in the summer plus a month and a half of playing pickup with the team um, as we got to school. And so I got to have a two-month tryout, and I got to do it with guys who knew how to play. And so that enabled me the opportunity to, uh, to prove my worth. And then, then there came a point in time when I realized that I had made the team and that was kind of a crazy moment. I'll say. That's awesome. Yeah. And you built relationships with these guys over that period and yeah. just, they know your style and you had an engineering brain, right? Well, so you were that organized. It, yeah, I did. I did. Now, did you go for mechanical or industrial or electrical? What kind of engineering? Uh, electrical engineering. Yep. So if we need to take the square root of negative one today during this interview, I'll be able to help you out with that. But that's about it. <laughs> we, we are not going to do that. <laughs> I tell I people went two often, years of engineering. That was enough for me. Well, which uh, which kind were you going for? Uh, mechanical. Okay. All right. So I loved it, but I was I looked at the other guys in the class and it came so easy. And I was spending, you know, already know, engineering's eight to five plus labs at night. And I was watching my friends just blow through it. And I'm sitting there in calculus and I'm like, 
I want to know why this works. I was just obsessed with the why. And like, mm-hmm. I don't care. I just want to get through the class. I'm like, I'm going to switch to marketing. Be easy. I'll sell robotics. I won't design them. <laughs> that was it. Two years was enough for me. I prayed about it. I'm like, God, do you want me to be an engineer? And I didn't feel the yes. So I, it's the only thing in my adult career I didn't complete. So I'm, if I ever go back to school, I'll finish that degree. But other than that, marketing was you so know, easy. don't don't go back and finish it. <laughs> I mean, really, it's it would uh, be for pure pride's sake. Yeah, I survived my engineering studies. I wouldn't say that I thrived. I would say that I survived. But it, I'll tell you, where it really helped me, even though uh, I've not, I tell people the world is a safer place because I'm not a practicing engineer. Um, I've never, I've never worked a day in my life. Um, doing actual engineering, but the structured problem solving that they teach in engineering, whether it's electrical, mechanical, industrial, chemical, materials, whatever kind of engineering, that structured problem solving has been something that I have used, I mean, every day, every single day throughout my career. And one of the things I'm seeing now is that that structured thinking brought to a space that frankly, oftentimes does not have that kind of structure in the development of people has been really, has really become an asset to me in the work that I do. And and that's not to say that I or the people I work with, we haven't figured out some way to put people through a machine and stamp out robotic leaders that come out the other side. It's not that at all. But understanding the, the way to bring structure, even to something like human dynamics, human development and relationships that that has that engineering degree has really served me. So I'm I'm very very thankful for um, both the colleges that I get to, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a second. But uh, both both schools for the engineering education that I ended up with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with you. The thought process and the way they train you to think through and solve problems, and especially reverse engineering was huge mm-hmm. when I went to school. And man, I've used that personally in life and I agree with it wholeheartedly. It's the best way to problem solve. So pick up, man. You're at Purdue, yeah. you're playing ball, keep going. Well, playing, this is a, you know, how do you want to use that term? I mean, I had a, <laughs> well, you define it. I had a very good seat for all the games. <laughs> That's how I would <laughs> define it. No, it was a, you know, Gene Cady was the coach there at the time. He's a Hall of Fame coach. Um, I'm thankful forever that he gave me a chance. He gave me a chance when a lot of coaches would not have. And um, I would not change the two years that I played at Purdue for anything. It was just, it taught me about, he. you know, he, he's an incredible person, Gene Katie is. And we would have an emphasis of the day every day. And sometimes it had something to do with basketball, but more often than not, it was about life. And that's Gene Cady. Gene Cady, you know, people saw him publicly. He's, a, I think he was a little misperceived at the time. He kind of had a scowl on his face most of the time. Um, I'd actually be an interesting to, to, if we were to put my mom and Gene Cady against each other in a competitiveness contest, I'm not sure who would win. Like they, Gene, <laughs> Gene, Gene Cady hates losing, which, uh, you know, I loved as, as a coach, but he, um, he just taught me, all of us really, that you're capable of more than you realize. And I mean, they, I was pushed to the brink physically, um, mentally, and, and I really was. I mean, I was hanging on for dear life. I was by my fingernails every single day. You kind of look down the list. We had um, crazy the guys that were on that team. We had five, if I'm remembering correctly now the number, I don't want to forget anybody, but – if we looked in our huddle, 
my sophomore year, we had five current or future Division One head coaches and the first player taken in the NBA draft in 1996. So it's um, – Oh, wow. So you, you would have thought that we'd have won a lot more games, actually. Now I think about it, it's like we really, we really should have done better. But, um, you know, Gene Cady was our head coach, of course. The assistant coach was Bruce Weber, who has been – went on to Illinois and is now the head coach at Kansas State. Uh, Link Darner, who just recently left uh, Green Bay, the head coach there. Al Major was the head coach at Charlotte. Uh, Conzo Martin has been in a number of different stops and is currently the head coach at uh, Missouri. And then uh, Matt Painter, who we played with there at Purdue, is now back, and he's been the head coach at Purdue for the last 15 years. And then the number one pick in the NBA draft was – Glenn Robinson, who was taken number one in, in 96. I say all that to say was when you don't get to play at all, you got to take a lot of joy in your teammates' accomplishments. <laughs> so um, I was really thankful to get to be around all of all of those guys and our, and our other assistant coaches as well, Tom Ryder in particular. However, and he was like, well, wait a second, you went to a different school. So I did the thing that I never could have ever imagined. Um, I noticed that my contribution to the program was lessening over time rather than increasing. Now, by that, I'm talking about practice. I'm not talking about games because I think I played in 27 minutes in two years. So you can you can do the math on that. Um, it wasn't about that. You know, with with my father doing what he did at West Virginia University with the football team, I knew that there were guys that never got in the game that contributed to the team's success in a meaningful way because every day they showed up in practice and say, look, we might be playing, we might be playing Penn state on Saturday, but today I'm Penn state for the guys who are going to play. And so my game is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, our team will play on Saturday, but my contribution is now. And you know, that was my, that was my role at Purdue. Now, I don't think you can ever be satisfied with that role. You can't say, well, that's the only thing you got to be working towards something more. But that was my role, and because I'd been around athletics with my father, I knew that that role was an important one. But as my as my contribution in practice seemed like it was waning, I was, you know, it's great to have the nice seat for the games, and it's great to wear the uniform, but I wanted to at least make sure I was making a contribution. And so I ended up making the decision I could have never imagined when I when I started this idea of wanting to play in college is that I had made the team at Purdue and decided to transfer and go to a different school where I felt like I could make more of a contribution. So that was a, that was a really unexpected turn in my story. But over time, um, I mean, you mentioned praying about things. I prayed a lot. I prayed a, I prayed a lot to make the team. <laughs> then I prayed a lot when I started to feel this uh, this dis- discontent. I definitely, as I was trying to make the team, I do remember one night in particular, there was a whole lot of deal-making going on, or at least in my head there was. Like, you know, God, if you make this happen. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> of, of course, God is laughing at me in that in a loving kind of way. Um, but I did end up, I ended up deciding that I was going to continue my engineering studies and my basketball career at a different school, which is a really, a really unexpected spot. I never would have imagined that, that I would have made, made the team and then make that choice, but it felt like it was the right thing to do. For the listeners, how did you make that decision? Talk about a leadership decision-making process. Like what did you use? Cause that's a major fork in the road that could have influenced your life either way. You'll never mm-hmm. know. And obviously it turned out well for you. But how did you come to that decision? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if that decision in in, in and of itself is kind of connected into leadership. Um, I mean, everything can be at a certain level, but I think at the time, you know, 
I think probably I could spell the word leadership at that time, but it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I was just trying to figure out what am I going to do? And, and frankly, it really was um, being a person of faith. It was just a ton of prayer and a lot of discussion with my parents who probably were like, what are you doing? But, you know, along the way, there's a very consistent story with my mom and dad. Um, and I just have to keep kind of pointing out what enormous blessings they were because Easily, my dad comes home from football practice every day looking at the quality of the athletes that are there and then looking at your flesh and blood and just being realistic. Um, but I'm so thankful that my mom and dad, when I was a kid, they were never realistic with me. When I started talking about wanting to compete, and then I mean, I should ask them, I don't know, you know, what did they, what discussions did they have after I go to bed? Like, did you hear what he said he wanted to do? <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is not going to go well. Um, but never once. And, you know, my mom is, is one of those people who she's with you no matter what. And it's so incredible to have somebody like that who's never going to tell you that you have limitations, who's never going to kind of bring you down and always uh, be encouraging of what's possible. I, I'm, I'm super rational, too rational at times. And as we would go and watch games, WVU games, as I was growing up, I'm telling you, one of the players from the football team could take, could grab an opponent by the face mask with two hands, rip his helmet off and get a 15 yard penalty for face mask. And my mom would be saying, no way, <laughs> you know, there, she was so loyal um, in so many ways. And it's, it's incredible to have somebody like that in your corner. So whether it was on the way to prep school or on the way to Purdue or at the possibility of transferring, Away from, and you know, if you, if you, for anybody who has kids, you know that you're so invested in what they're doing. I just try to imagine this whole scenario from my mom and dad's perspective. What must it have been like for them to have me say, I think maybe I want to transfer? The number of hours that they have put in to me being in that position as Purdue, you couldn't even count them. I mean, when, when I was talking about how my dad pulled that off, I still don't know. But I remember in junior high when we were always trying to play more games. And so we'd sign up for these spring tournaments in Cumberland, Maryland. It's an hour and a half from where I live. So my dad gets home from work on a Tuesday night in the spring and loads up the car with me and a bunch of guys. And we're going to drive an hour and a half to play a game and then an hour and a half back on a Tuesday night. And we would do that 10 times in the springtime. And like, I mean... I know what I feel like at the end of the day when I get home and I just, I'm, I marvel at that. And then of course, what I realize now is, is that my mom was having to hold up the other end of it with my brother and my sister in, in the midst of that as well. So when one parent goes to do something, sometimes the hero is the person who's back at home managing, managing the other load that goes along with that. So both of them really just amazing in their investments, but here I am. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I was going to say, and for the parents' discouraged now, because like you said, it can be exhausting parenting. I mean, you're like running all the time. And the more kids you have, the more running you're doing. <laughs> Did you appreciate your parents then? Or was it kind of like, this is just life? And now you're looking back like, wow, they were super people. Yeah, no, no way did I appreciate it at the time for what it was. I mean, I, it's only since I've become a parent that my, my eyes get big and I'm like, oh, my goodness, how did they do that? Where so for did all the of energy us listening, come from? Yeah. What's that say? Yeah. That again? So for all of us listening, I said, so for all of us listening right now, we have hope. If <laughs> we're at home with teenagers, especially, oh, yes. and they hate you right now. Yeah. No, there's hope. They're, they're listening. They're taking notes <laughs> and they'll appreciate it later. 
Hopefully so. Tim, you've given us hope in an unknown way. We're not just talking about leadership today. It's Parenting 101 in the title of this podcast. Glad glad that's uh, Parenting by John and Sabra Spiker. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. We'll put a show note link in there and put a picture if you want. There you go. As a, as there a you thank go. you. Oh, that'll be great. That'll be great. We should definitely do that. So yeah, send me a picture and I'll get that in there so yeah. you guys can see what incredible people made such a remarkable guy. So uh, keep going. Now you're transferring. And if you don't mind asking, where did you transfer to? Yeah. So I transferred to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and it's a traditionally successful uh, basketball program at the division three level, great engineering school. It was actually a school that I had considered when I was, uh, coming out of prep school the first time, but it wasn't at the top of my list. And just because I wanted to give the Purdue thing a shot. And so now I walk into a very different situation. Um, very thankful. They had a pretty, they had a pretty loaded team and, and an opportunity for somebody to step in and be the point guard of that team. Uh, and so I was super thankful. I, you know, I didn't, um, it's interesting. You transfer in as a division one player and you can't see me, but I'm using quote fingers here. Cause I, I don't know that I ever, re- I mean, I don't think I ever really was a division one player. I was a division three player who got to be on a division one team for a couple of years. But there were a lot. There was a lot of learning curve that came into that. And I, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself at a certain level to say, you know, I've got to perform at a certain level because I'm coming for that. But hopefully, over time, I let go of that because you know you you learn a little bit more about who you really are going through that. And and I couldn't be somebody on the court that I wasn't. I was never a big scorer. Um, I shot the ball. Let's see how would how could we say this diplomatically? Okay, <laughs> you know I was. It was workable. Um, you couldn't just hide away from me, but it, I wasn't lighting it up. And so to say, oh, I'm going to transfer to Division Three and I'm going to average 20 points a game, that just wasn't going to happen. I didn't – I mean, to, to set the stage coming out of high school, well, this this almost doesn't make sense. I, I played for Division One Big Ten school. I averaged seven points a game in high school, seven. And, and so back to the idea of, you know, somehow that didn't deter me. I mean, somehow I – my somehow my uh, I had the ability to ignore the math on that, and I don't know where that came from. That that must be a God thing, where I was able to look at those statistics and say, "Oh yeah, I can still do this someday." It was just a just a belief, I guess, that was very strong. You just knew there was more inside of you. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Like I don't know where that came from because the forty eight year old Tim Spiker would not see that. I don't think. I think that there was a hope and optimism and I'm not cynical at all. I'm an optimistic person, but there was almost a defiance of reality. And I guess you know, part of the story is there. Sometimes if you ignore reality, then, then you get to <laughs> later on. Um, so it, it worked out for me in that way, but I wasn't going to turn around and show up at Wash U as it's referred to and just start pouring in points. Cause that wasn't the type of player I was. That wasn't where my skill set was. And, um, you know, sometimes we can think that we're better than we are. And I certainly had a little bit of that coming into it. And I remember I'm throwing passes to my teammates and the ball's flying out of bounds. We're playing pickup before the season started. I'm like, what's going on? What is my deal? Another ball goes. (laughs) And somehow over the course of a couple of weeks, the light bulb started to come on. I mentioned Glenn Robinson. Um, I'll just tell you that if you're playing basketball with the number one pick in the NBA draft, you can throw the ball just about anywhere and he's going to make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it took me so, you know, when you're playing, I, I had teammates that were great basketball players, but there's a big difference between being a Division three player and being the first pick in the NBA draft. And the reason I'm throwing the ball out of bounds is because I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> For my teammates that weren't being picked in the NBA draft, you're you're passing, especially if you're sending the ball up for a big guy to go get it and dunk it. You've got to be a you got to be more pinpoint if the player you're throwing to is not superhuman. Well, Glenn Robinson was superhuman, and so I could throw it anywhere. And the funny part about it is, I thought I was doing something, <laughs> and I look back <laughs> on it now, and I'm like. You you know your dog could have made that pass, Tim. I mean, there's no there was there was no, and it took me the first first two or three weeks. I'm like, wow, you're not as good as you thought you were, which was a good a good lesson for me to come to a realization of. Um, but eventually, I got to be in that point guard role for the team, and really got to step into that space and begin to begin to kind of come into my own um, in into my own understanding of leading. Uh, even though it was, I wasn't conscious at that time, you know, I got into some other situations at Purdue with my teammates where I was, hopefully I was not a punk, but I also was somebody who was not afraid to challenge my teammates. And I was kind of the guy, I mean, I had to be, there were times when they were all annoyed with me because, you know, if we're running sprints at the end of practice and I, I never took, I never took a single sprint off because I couldn't afford to. And still be on the team. Meanwhile, I'm winning a bunch of sprints, but how much did I actually practice? You know, let's think about my teammates who are maybe a little more exhausted than I am. And I think about that right now, but that's, you know, I would have moments where maybe I exhibited a little bit of leadership with my teammates at Purdue, where I would be trying to encourage or show an example. And I remember some specific moments of those that were a little bit pointed. Well, you can read into that, whatever you like. Um, but uh, then it got onto Wash U and it, it becomes a different story because um, it's different when you're on the court. It's different when you're playing. It's different than when it's not just a practice thing. And so it really started to kind of start to get my own feet wet in a more tangible way about what it means for me to, to be a leader and to exercise some of those abilities at that level. So it was a totally different experience than being at Purdue. I played more in one game at Wash U than I did in two years at Purdue. Um, but I am so thankful for both of those experiences because they both shaped me in different ways. That's great. So now you finish there, you finish your degree. Mm -hmm. And then where does your life go from there? Um, you know, I'd gotten some interest in the finance world, even as I was studying, um, studying engineering. And I was pretty clear when I graduated that my route was going to leverage engineering from that problem-solving standpoint, uh, but not necessarily as an engineer. And I kind of understood that. So that would kind of naturally take you into the consulting world at that time. But I did get some exposure to some finance, personal finance work. And I did that for a little while, thinking that I was just going to help, um, well, not just, it's an important job to help families and individuals make good, smart, sound decisions with regard to their to their money. Uh, but along that way, I got, I got the bug to go back to uh, go back to school and uh, get an MBA. And I am, I am happy to report that getting an MBA was much easier for me than getting an engineering degree <laughs> because yeah, um, I can imagine, um, but I loved it. I absolutely loved grad school. I mean, it was, I, I really, I really loved that. Uh, part of the time 
I was a full-time student. The other part of the time I was working during the day and going at night. Those were wildly different experiences. But I, I loved, I remember first day of first day of the MBA program that I went to Wash U. So I went back to my alma mater for that in St. Louis. And I remember one of my classmates raising her hand, is there going to be math? <laughs> and I think, boy, I sure hope so. Um, even my engineering studies really set me up to where I could really focus on the, on the business concepts. And the math never really hung me up because my engineering work had taken care of all that. And so that was a, that was a huge blessing. Um, so that took me into, into my MBA studies and it was along that path where the really conscious, um, the really conscious interest around leadership started to take, take bloom. That's awesome. And then talk about that. So you're seeing a huge transition, obviously, in not just the teachers, but in the students and then in yourself in this major Mm -hmm. and you're going through this, this business degree now but you're processing through an engineering filter and where are the similarities with leadership that you're seeing emerge? Well, I would say even at that time, I probably wasn't totally conscious of leadership as a, as a field of say, it was just starting to, you know, that was just starting to turn on for me. It was just starting to light up. And so I didn't think back to, to my engineering studies because I, I would say this in, in the research that I've had a chance to be a part of, I don't, um, you know, what it shows to, to me and to the group of folks that I get a chance to work with is that leadership is not relative. Uh, it's not that here's how you lead now and here's how, here's how effective leadership would have been 30 years ago. Now, I will totally admit that the context changes, but the principles of leadership stay consistent. We have to understand how to play them, how to apply them in new contexts. And so whether you're leading an engineering organization, whether you're an engineering business or you're in a business that's producing widgets and you're selling them, the principles of leadership are the same. The context will differ. And of course, we're in an exceptional context right now, just in the world and in our country around things that are going on, whether you want to talk about racial unrest or COVID-19 or, or any of those types of things. Those things don't change what's critical about leadership. They do, however, things that we have to take into account as we apply those principles. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get to all that a little bit. But back to your original question. At the time, uh, in my engineering studies, I really wasn't conscious to the leadership stuff. It was only really when I started the MBA stuff. So I didn't have a great comparison necessarily. And and we never talked about leadership. I mean, we never talked about leadership in engineering. I mean, that was all equations. <laughs> you know, that was... That was all uh, math and science. There was no, dis- literally no, and, and perhaps that's problematic. There was literally no discussion of leading anybody when it, it from the from the uh, engineering studies that I had, uh, and only you know in the MBA program there were more opportunities to talk about. It. But even that at times was limited. They were still teaching you about concepts of marketing and finance, and and sometimes even there. Um, there was organizational behavior that you could dig into, and eventually, that started to take hold. But there was a there was a moment for me where the whole thing flipped on, and that happened just before grad school. All right, and then this was the '90s, correct? You know you're old when you have to pause to think about the answer to that question. <laughs> yes, this is a this is this would have been. So I graduated from college originally originally undergrad 96 so this would have been late 90s early 2000s 
Yeah. So the, all that leadership movement and, you know, you hear these names around all day now, but back then it wasn't like that. I mean, Tony Robbins was out there and you had a few mega stars. And other than that, people were really just like, get in there. I got the position, do what I tell you. And the mindset was totally different in most places. Would you agree or am I off base there? You know, I think that, I think at that time that was already starting to shift in terms of what was culturally acceptable. But you did have Jack Welch, who was pretty famous at the time for, you know, we've got to be one or two in our markets or we're not going to be in that. And he was, you know, consistently cutting the bottom 10%. That was a new thing at that time. And, um, but there was, there were some things starting to shift. And, and the question ultimately is, you know, what does a culture or what does an organization, what does it tolerate at a particular time? And that gets back to the whole issue of context. Cause if you were to go back to when the baby boomers were flooding the market with, uh, with supply, so to speak, in terms of people, there's a lot of poor leadership that didn't get taken out because there was so much supply. And so if somebody said, look, I don't like the way you're leading or I don't like the way you're doing this, we're like, that's fine. You just move on. I'll take the next person. A hundred people that want your job. And on top of that, you've got, you've got a boom that comes after World War II. So here I am. I'm, I'm Mr. or Mrs. Command and Control. And I don't need to consider anybody else in the way that I lead because we've got a glut of supply of, of workforce and the economy totally unrelated to me. I mean, totally unrelated to anything that I'm doing. A rising tide floats all boats, as the saying goes. So here we are. We're doing better and better and better as an American economy. And I might be in total command and control, and I've got all the supply of labor that I need. I'd be very easily fooled into thinking I was leading well. Very easily fooled. But what was really going on is I was leading poorly in an environment that tolerated it. I wasn't leading with the greatest principles if I'm just knocking people on the heads all the time. And so we, we have to be, get back, it's back to the, I keep coming back to the issue of context. You got to understand the context. The principles don't change, but sometimes there's a context that tolerates things and we can fool ourselves into thinking that that is, that is the best choice when in fact, it's just the context that's allowing it to happen. Yeah. It's, it goes right back to the basketball illustration you've used throughout this episode. Are you, you're the same man, but are you playing in a division one league or a division three league? Because you're going to look different based on who's around you. <laughs> and if the economy's great and you're in division three, you just look good, but you might really not be that good. That's a fair, that's a so, fair, that's a fair analogy. That's a fair analogy. Yeah, man. So, all right. So pick up, you said you have this life changing moment. There I don't was want to skip a moment. anything from your college, yeah. <laughs> but if there's nothing we've skipped, like me and your beautiful bride or anything like that, that's significant. Let's get to that moment, man. The yeah. catalyst. She comes along much later. Uh, my, my story of marriage and kids doesn't start until I'm 36. So we have still have a little ways uh, to get to that, to that story um, in, in my story, but I was waiting tables. I was getting ready to start my MBA studies. And I was waiting tables and a colleague of mine invited me to an open house for a marketing company. Now, I will say to those that are listening, if anybody ever invites you to an open house for a marketing company, ask more questions. <laughs> I did not ask more questions. <laughs> um, I should have asked more questions. I, you know, I, I talk about that night as the greatest lie that I've ever been told because I was very misled about what an open house for a marketing company was. But here, here's what I was confident of. I'm getting ready to start my MBA studies. I'm interested. Marketing is going to be part of my focus. And so it makes sense to go check it out for that. 
I was also pretty sure that there was going to be a free meal involved. And so at that time of life, <laughs> you could have gotten me to do a lot of things for a free meal. I, I may, I, I still may not be that far off from that time of life. But between the marketing learning and the free meal, I was, uh, I was all in. Uh, when I got there, I assumed there'd be a little bit of a presentation of some type, and I was right about that. And I took the only seat that was available in the middle of the room. And that ends up becoming a very important part of the story, that I was in the middle of the room. Because three minutes into the presentation, I learned what an open house for a marketing company actually is. It is actually a recruiting meeting for a multi-level marketing company who wants you to sell water purifiers to all your family and friends. <laughs> now, I'm not against, I know there may be some listeners who, you know, have had multi-level marketing change their lives in the most positive way. And so I'm not categorically against that industry, but I can say I was not interested in being a part of it. That's not why I was there, but I, I grew to understand Okay, now I understand what an open house for a marketing company really is. This is a this is a recruiting meeting. So I'm there in the middle of the room and I have a choice. Do I get up and walk out of here and make a scene? The room was pretty packed. Or do I just wait for the break, you know, grab my sandwich and, and head out the door? So those those were the choices that I had. And I didn't I didn't want to make a scene. So I just I'll just wait it out. And about 10 minutes into the presentation, they started talking about what does it mean to be an employee? That's, that's the moment for me. I just started listening to the answers. And it was like, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth entered the room. I mean, it was doom. It was gloom. It was awful. What if the leader you're following actually invested in you? What if the leader that you're following actually considered the whole of who you are and your family in the midst of, it was just a lot of what ifs that were all really negative. And at that point I checked out, like I didn't hear another thing that the person up front became Charlie Brown's teacher to me, just wah, wah, wah. And I just sat there and thought it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have, how come, how come when somebody says to you, what is it like to follow so-and-so? Why couldn't the answer be, it's the greatest blessing of my life. It's the most incredible thing. I can't believe that I get a chance to do this. I, get a, I can't believe I get a chance to follow this person. And so um, that sent me on my journey. I sat there. Uh, I sat there and I just thought about that. And I thought about what am I going to do when I walk out of this room? And I decided that I was going to start interviewing anybody who would give me the time that I had access to about leadership. And I had a, you know, I had a few very immature ideas about leadership. So I wanted to share some of those and get people's feedback. But I walked out of there that night. I started making phone calls the next day. I started visiting with everybody that would give me uh, the time of day that I thought was in a leadership position that I wanted to listen to. And I would finish every single discussion with the same question, which was who else should I talk to? And they would give me two or three names. And so you know, I would call uh, I would call Jerome up and say, "Hey, Jerome, you don't know me. My name's Tim Spiker, but Sally said that I should give you a call. And I'm talking with people about leadership, and she thought you'd be a good person for me to talk with. And there was not a single person that ever said no to those phone calls, for which I am very, very thankful. And that's what started me on the path that is, you know, well, really led 
you and I to be talking today. Um, everything since then from a vocation standpoint has pushed me in, in this direction. And this and the switch that got flipped that night has never gotten flipped off. And that's funny because that's actually how you and I met. I'm like, who should I talk to to someone else? And they brought me to you. <laughs> how about that? How about that? It's amazing how God works it out. So it's a good question. It's a good question to ask in general. Who else should I talk to? Tell me who to talk to. Yep, very much so. So keep going. This is awesome. Well, um, so in the midst of doing my MBA studies, I was interviewing all these leaders. And uh, eventually, a good friend in St. Louis named Sid Keen. Sid is a, uh, uh, an experienced, wise gentleman. And I had started to have a vision for getting people out of their everyday environments to work on themselves as leaders. And in my mind, um, that was going to be in the mountains. Um, maybe it's because I grew up in West Virginia. Um, but in, in my mind, living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time, the mountains for me meant the Rocky Mountains. So I was explaining to Sid, who is just a, like I said, he's just a gem of a guy. And the, these moments happen in your life where you don't see them coming. And somebody asks you the most, the simplest question. And you're like, why didn't I think of that? It's like, so I'm talking with Sid about, you know, what I'm learning about leadership and what I eventually want to do. And it's starting to think about these experiential learning things that I wanted to help create. And I think the Rockies is probably the place I'd like to do that eventually. And he says, so, you know, we were, we were talking about Denver a little bit. And he said, well, when are you moving to Denver? And I said, well, what do you mean? So well, when, when are you moving? You're talking about Denver. You're saying you want to be in the Rockies. You want to do this. When are you moving to dinner? Denver. And I was just kind of dumbfounded. <laughs> you know, here I am telling him about this dream that I have. And all he's doing is asking me, when are you, when's your plan to take the next step? And it had never occurred to me <laughs> before that moment that I was actually going to have to move. Um, and it sounds crazy now. I'd been living in St. Louis for nine years at that time. And I left his office and I was like, I'm, I'm moving to Denver. <laughs> it was it, it was <laughs> such a moment. I'm so thankful to Sid asking me that very, very uh, simple question. And so then my networking around leadership took me to the Rockies and I went out there for three weeks and I was sleeping on couches in basements of friends of friends of friends. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have any money. So it wasn't like I was staying from hotel to hotel. It was really just figure it out. And along that way, I came in contact with, uh, with a leadership development company or a consulting firm that had a leadership development arm. And um, this was like, I had a couple trips out to Denver and eventually they said, Hey, um, we'd like you to come on board and be a part of our team. And at that point, I was probably 32 at the time, if I'm remembering correctly. I didn't imagine I'd have an opportunity to do that kind of work until I was probably over 40, maybe even in my mid 40s. So it was like, wow, uh, dream job right now. Giddy up, drop it all, load up the dogs. <laughs> we're, uh, we're headed to Denver. And that's where I started my consulting career there um, with a with firm there. And that's really remarkable because you were working, you were working, you were working. And then when the opportunity came, you could seize it. You were ready. 
But just to clarify, all the research and interviews you were doing, that wasn't for a doctorate. That wasn't for, as part of your curriculum. That was purely on your own for self-growth, correct? That's correct. Although I, I should have leveraged it for some credit. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> that was, uh, I probably could have said, yeah, no, that was just on my own. I mean, I had a teammate at WashU, a guy named Jeff Hutz. Really, really, like I probably don't survive engineering without Jeff Hutz being by my side. He helped me so much. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever been around. And fortunately, he's a pretty good basketball player too. Um, but Jeff had a very interesting take. Jeff did a, a combo program where he, where he studied electrical engineering and got his MBA and the whole thing took five years. So certainly, yeah, yeah, he yeah, yeah, he's very, very smart. And he he and I were talking and he was talking about, um, you know, reading financial reports and he was talking about later on, we were talking about when he would interview people to be a part of the financial group that he was a part of, he would ask them about the financial reports that they're reading. And lots of times he would get the answer like, well, I mean, nothing in particular, but see Jeff, because he, because he was passionate about finance and business Imagine a guy at lunchtime who's pouring over financial statements of just random companies that he interested to learn about. That was Jeff. And so he wasn't doing it for college credit or anything else. He was doing it because he was passionate about it. And then when it came time for him to interview somebody else, he wanted to know, tell me about what you're reading about on your own. And he was using that as a filter to determine how passionate somebody, you know, do you just want a job or is this a, you know, is this something you're passionate about? And I've always remembered that about how smart that was on, on his part to have that as an interview question to say what people were up to when they had the, when they didn't have to, is this the yeah, kind of stuff they that love you know? what yeah. drives them and fuels them. That's super yeah. wise. Yeah. So that was true of me of leadership. That was true of me doing those interviews. And then of course I just started consuming every leadership book I could get my hands on and started to develop some of my, my own perspectives over time and then got a chance to, to start working with this uh, firm and, and be in the Rockies. And, and part of my interviewing process was spending a week on the West side of Pike's peak going through assessments and experiences that this group put through their folks through leadership development. I remember being looking up at Pike's peak and I remember thinking, this is, this is 95% of my biggest dream. And I'm not even sure what the other 5% was. I just, I, there had to be something that was missing, but I was out of my mind of, man, did, did God planted this in me and here I am. And, this is this is this is where I'm supposed to be, and this is where I'm supposed to go, and and this is way faster in life than I ever imagined. Yeah, and Pikes Peak, I mean, it's gorgeous, and that's right near Pennington Peak, right? Very you, close by. You know, I should know that, having lived there for a little while, but I'm not sure. There's a few different peaks there. Um, Long's Long's Peak is not too far from there, but you you may know better than I do. No, I just know when I was out in the Boulder area and the Denver area, we went and climbed Pennington Peak. And we were going to go to Pikes, but we couldn't make it. Like something happened, so we changed gears. Yeah. But man, what a gorgeous place. So I could see it's, why you felt like you were 5% was just your wife. And after that, <laughs> you go home to glory with heaven. Now, let's let's be clear. My wife is not just 5% of my life. Let's just be real. Let's just set the, set the, uh, set the <laughs> we want to make sure that at we that make point. that clear. At that, well, at that point, she wasn't, I didn't even know her at that point. So that was, uh, that's, that's coming later on. But uh yeah, so I just couldn't believe that I was getting the opportunity to be a part of that group at that time. So then from you're 32, you're living your dream, you're almost like, is this real? Mm -hmm. And then you 
you've learned through the years and you've developed the who, not what principle. Take us from 32 years old, still learning and growing yeah, to developing this principle that shaped your life and other people's. Well, this all happened on, on this is a good segue actually, because it all starts with, with Pike's Peak. So the people that would come up to our, um, to our leadership development experience that we had, we would put them through a series of assessments. And over time, we started getting the same questions over and over again, which is, we're taking all these assessments. What's the magic mix? Like, what is the combination of personality and natural ability that leads to a more effective leader? And we had enough data that we could run that analysis. So uh, a colleague of mine, Vanessa Kiley, who was um, really great with the old SPSS software and her ability to crunch the, more, the numbers, she was uh, studying uh, industrial organizational uh, behavior, so she could she could do that all very well for us. She took all the data that we had, and she put it all together. And I remember the night that I walked into her office. Okay, that you you've you've run the data. Tell me what you found. Dun dun dun! Yep. It's like that moment, right? Yeah, it was. And she said nothing. There's no correlations. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> okay, I, you know, I. Telling the story, you'd think I would have been disappointed, but frankly, I was just happy to have an answer when our clients asked. Um, and we knew that they were going to keep keep asking. So as well, I, I mean, I'm glad we looked, and now we'll tell them that there's no magic mix. And I will tell you, I expected there to be some correlations. I expected some some pieces of the personality profile that we were using to match up with natural abilities and to at least say, hey, you're better at setting direction in leadership if you have a if you if you take an information in a broad spectrum which is, stands for the n aspect of myers briggs and you have a really long time horizon oh you're going to be better at, naturally better at setting direction turns out that's not the case there's there's no statistical evidence to back that up i turned to walk out of her office and she said but we did find something so i turn around and i walk back in and like what are you what are you talking about she said, well, we didn't find any of the stuff that we were looking for, but the software found other correlations. And those correlations are just happen within our leadership 360. They don't involve personality. They don't involve natural abilities. And I said, well, well what do you mean? She said, well, we have eight aspects of our leadership assessment. And just two of them are driving almost 70% of the variability on the entire assessment. And we'll do a little math here for the audience, two out of eight, if you're, if everything is equally important, that variability number tied to those two should only be 25%. And when she ran the numbers, it was almost 70%. A few years later, she re-ran those numbers with 10 times the data points. And the connection went from just under 70% to 77%. We actually thought it would go down because we thought, oh, maybe there's some anomalies in here that are skewing things. It turns out the anomalies were the things that weren't aligned and that the correlation was actually even bigger than we thought it was. And so in the midst of all of that time, I'd actually decided to leave the consulting firm because you, sometimes you love what you're doing, but the the circumstances in which you're doing it, or sometimes, frankly, the people that you're following – it's, it just makes life really, really hard. And so, if, you know, for the second time in my life, I left the thing that I thought was my dream. So I'd done it once at Purdue, 
And in this environment, I loved the content of our work, but we had a long way, interestingly enough, we had a long way to go as an organization. We had some holes in how we operated in some of the dynamics. And after three years, I was just like, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta live in a different organization. When I was um, interviewing people around leadership, one of the one of the folks said, "Hey Tim, if you want to learn about leadership, you don't need to go around and ask everybody about it. You need to go to find the best leader you know and follow that person for a while, if you really want to understand leadership." And I had basically dismissed that uh, perspective out of hand when it was first told to me. But now when I was kind of like at the edge of my rope with regard to my career and being unsatisfied with how things operated, not the content again, I thought of that. And fortunately, I'd been introduced to an incredible leader at the consulting firm who had left. I called him up and said, basically, I went out of here. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'll, I'll have something for you in about nine months. And Almost to the day, he called me up and said they had a position. It was, I was selling cement. <laughs> so, I mean, nothing to do with what I had been doing, but I was so, I, I, I needed to, I needed to get out of there. And so this, this whole story begins to, to unfold in that I actually left leadership consulting, knowing that we had found this correlation, but we hadn't put all the pieces together. So there's two aspects of leadership. But in the meantime, I leave the firm and it was three years later. I'm still working for the cement manufacturing company. I'm sitting in my office one day, not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm sitting there thinking about leadership and I'm supposed to be <laughs> crunching some numbers on some weekly reports. And that was a moment when like, it was like there was a, I don't know, a really loud single note just imagine somebody hitting the middle c and it just reverberates and doesn't stop and so i'm looking at this data on my whiteboard and i see the two aspects that made up 77 percent. and then all of a sudden i mean i don't want to over spiritualize it but it felt that way it felt like hey here's what you're looking at tim and it was those two aspects were about who you are as a person and the other six aspects were about what you do as a leader. And that's when the light bulb went off to say that 77%, or if you want to round it and make the language a little, a little easier, three quarters of your effectiveness as a leader comes from who you are, not what you do. And I remember going st went straight down the hallway to, it was actually my boss's boss, but he was the guy that had been at the consulting firm. He was the guy that I followed. And I said, you got to hear this. And I'm scribbling on his whiteboard as fast as I can. And he was another, another person, very similar to my mom. And like, he never said, don't worry about that. He never said, in fact, I remember specifically, I was getting heat at the consulting firm about where I was spending my time. And he pulled me aside. He said, tell me what you've got so far. And I remember going through it with him that day. And we weren't to who, not what yet. We were still trying to figure out some things. And I remember him just looking at me and saying, keep going, keep going. Yeah. He ran a lot of interference for me. You know, he was one of those leaders where, you know, some leaders get pressure from above them. And they, it's, it's like a really small nozzle on a hose. 
and they just accelerate that pressure onto their teams. And he was the exact opposite of that. The more pressure that he got internal to our consulting firm, he just took it all. He just absorbed all of it. There was no way that he was going to advance up the chain of command in that, in that company because he wasn't there to play their games. So he just took it all and then turned around to us in the group and made the best decisions that he thought were making for our clients and what the company needed to do. But he didn't just kind of roll over whenever his superiors said, make more sales or focus on this or that, that we're trying to sell now. And um, there are so many different ways. His, his name is, his name is Mike Kane. There are so many different ways in which Mike has changed my life. And that was the first one. That was the first one when he, he really said, he said, keep going. Um, well, it's probably the second one. There's probably a million stories with Mike, but no, I was ready to leave the company when he first showed up and I stayed for a whole nother year after that. And he's my, he's my superior. He's got all kinds of opportunities. We could tell Mike Kane stories. I could tell Mike Kane stories all day long, but he got an opportunity to do some other things. And, um, you know, he calls me up and says, Hey, I'm thinking about taking another job. Are you going to be okay if I do that? Like he had a perfect opportunity for him and his family. And he's calling me up to make sure I would be okay if he left the company. I mean, that's the kind of others focused leader that, that he, he was and still is today. So uh, I've taken a few rabbit trails from our, from our last question there, but. Oh, no, these are wonderful. (laughs) And as a listener, if you haven't been able to follow a leader like that yet, then Lord willing, it'll come in your life. And then all of us, like listening to Tim, look at the tips so we can be that leader. Because mm-hmm. if you haven't had somebody that maybe stepped in and influenced you so positively, you can be that light and that leader to someone else or many people. So keep listening, keep taking notes mm-hmm. and know that, you know, God loves you and he's there for you. But when we get that extra person in the flesh that he provides, it is a great feeling. Yeah. 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 So, so. It was Mike's office that I ran to when I said, hey, look at this. It's it's who, not what. Three quarters leadership is who you are. And he was um, always encouraging with that same story. Keep going. You're on to something. Keep going. Keep digging. Keep looking. And, uh, you know, eventually um, I decided that that as, as good of a blessing as that cement company was at the time, <laughs> um, you know, eventually uh, something was going to have to change in order for me to pursue this more fully. And, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes you clear your schedule. Sometimes your schedule gets cleared for you. And, uh, we went through some organizational changes and I was about to, to take a job stepping into more organizational development for that cement firm, that cement, um, manufacturing company and everything changed. And my old job went away, my new job went away, and I got downsized. And um, in the meantime, I'll I'll uh, I'll say that. So my wife has entered the picture at this time. So imagine being newly married, and like one of the first things that happened is your husband gets laid off. And we were fortunate. Oh. Yeah, we were fortunate in that um, Mike, being Mike, uh, it wasn't. I wasn't blind. I was going into a meeting not with Mike. But he had said, hey, buddy, you better get your resume updated. <laughs> and, you know, I appreciated that because I don't know how I would have handled the moment had I not known what I was walking into. But I remember remember walking out the front door 
and have a, a bit of a laugh with my wife and say, hey, I'm going to go get laid off now. <laughs> and, and when I came back home, there was a note on the front door. And I don't remember what the note was, but I remember that it was there. There was a note on the front door and a, and a beer sitting on the, on the front stair. And it was basically like, welcome home. Come on in. And um, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really she, – she really handled it in a sweet way. And you, you know how much sweeter it is when you understand that I'm, she's much more risk-averse than I am. And so it would have been totally a moment where she could freak out. Uh, but in the midst of that day, she was an in, she was an incredibly supportive person. And I think she really set aside her her normal fears to be helpful to me. Um, but that cleared my schedule. And uh, I ended up going and taking a job as a leadership development manager inside of what had been one of my former clients when I was at the consulting firm. And that was a whole nother realm of education. Because it's one thing to be a consultant on the outside, but when you're in that company every day, oh my goodness, it's a different world. And uh, yeah. Twice the work for half the money <laughs> and more pressure. You know, you, you may be very familiar with this concept. Um, so. Oh, 100%, dude. I, got, I love people and helping companies grow. And for years, I was in the companies. Mm-hmm. And you take a lot of pressure and a lot of beating, and it's all worth it. But it's exhausting. It is. You, Throw the term consultant on and work for yourself. You make double the money with half the stress. If you can just be 50 miles away, you become significantly smarter somehow. I don't know how that works, but if you had to travel, it's like the bioverse. I think it's like the bioverse. You know, there's no honor for a profit in his own home. Yeah. I think when you work for a company, it's that same concept. Well, he works here, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And it's like, I'm the same dude, man. Uh, what are you talking about? Exact same guy, exact same messages, but you know, now I'm I'm super smart. And in the last few years, I've been traveling around the world doing this work. Can you imagine how smart I become when I get on an airplane and go across the ocean? I mean, I become brilliant in that moment, only I'm no different than I was when I when I was when I was back here stateside. I just I become a somehow a much perception is very interesting when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah. And sometimes in yourself, you're like, what am I going to be when I grow up? And you're like, everybody else is looking at you as this expert. And you're like, huh, I don't know what the next step is, but we'll ride with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so I ended up going internal for a while. That was an incredibly, um, that was an incredibly valuable time. It was difficult. As you said, there were all types of things that you had to manage internally that you never had to think about as a consultant. You didn't even know about as a consultant. Um, but they really, gave me a canvas to paint on. And there were a lot of deeper learnings where we took, now we're taking that who, not what principle, and I'm starting to put it into play into our development, leadership development within the organization and making mistakes. Before you go yeah. on, yeah. you just jump, you have so much wisdom. You just said something really important, I think, and you just like skipped across it. So <laughs> I want to point it out. Okay. We have a lot of business owners who listen to this podcast across the world. Mm-hmm. And I'd say more business owners reach out to me than anybody else who listens. So it's, it's, it blew me away, actually. I'm going to be quite transparent. But if you're hiring someone that's supposed to be the expert, again, quote unquote, you know, yeah. air quotes here, mm-hmm. if they haven't worked, if they just went to college and got a degree and they became a consultant and they haven't actually worked within a corporation, I'm not saying there aren't people out there who are exceptional and can do it, but there's very few. I really think you need to be in the trenches. You need to experience it because you're not going to have that balanced, holistic view 
of how to truly grow an organization if you haven't been there. That's my opinion, Tim. If I'm wrong, you yeah. can say it publicly right now, but that's how I feel. I, you know, I, I think that is, I think the key there, keyword you said is, is that, the, you know, I don't think you've said the majority of the time, but, but the vast majority of the time, that's true. I think there are some moments, and I learned this back to Mike Kane. I learned this from Mike. I think there are some moments where sometimes people have a natural under, understanding. Mike told me, you know, Mike worked in, in labor, uh, labor law areas within companies. And he said that one of the best negotiators he had ever worked with had never worked in a union environment. And so, so there are moments where people perhaps have a natural ability or natural understanding of something, but I would completely agree with you that that's the exception. And I'm, I'm forever thankful for the opportunity to be on the inside of an organization, to get a chance to be a leadership development manager for a firm on the inside and understand more of what some of the challenges are. And I do think that that's the vast majority of cases, although there might be some exceptions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've just was saying, I've seen a lot of people hire consultants who they've only consulted. Yeah. And man, that always, almost, <laughs> almost always ends badly. And I've even seen one billion dollar organization hire executives from other billion dollar organizations where they almost had a monopoly. So it's like you said earlier. If you're the only, you know, we were talking about the other scenario, but if if the economy's good, yeah, then you just look good. You look like you know what you're doing, but you may not be really that skilled. That's true. Well, if you have a monopoly almost on an industry, then yeah, it's pretty easy to hit your goals and growth, you know, ratio. Yeah. So they brought in people who are in the oil industry to lead a completely different type of company. Mm they seriously destroyed the company in two yeah. years and it was worth pennies on the dollar. And so that's what I'm saying for yeah. you, you know what good leadership is, you know what good <laughs> consultants are, but if you don't have the right fit, it can be an expensive mistake. It can be very expensive. I mean, but to, to back up what you're saying with regard to the, you know, really, I mean, this gets a little bit back what we were talking about earlier around context. You got to understand uh, the context between the different industries. When I when I joined the that cement manufacturing company, we were literally rationing cement. There was so much demand. Now, I am in a sales role for a product that is being rationed. Do you think I hit my sales targets that year? <laughs> a monkey <laughs> could have hit my sales targets that year. Of course, I hit the sales targets. I got the bonus. It would have been a lie for me to think that I was a good salesperson. I'm not a good salesperson, as a matter of fact. But it didn't matter because the context around me was we were literally saying, you get cement this week, you don't. Um, and so, you know, there's there are circumstances where it's good for us to be careful about how much, you know, back to my my transfer perspective of myself playing basketball. I need to be careful sometimes about taking too much credit because there might be a whole lot of other things that are going around that have contributed and just make us think that we're more responsible for the success than we actually are. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. But go on. So now you're in this role and you're learning and you're growing and you're seeing this who not what principle emerge. Talk about that and how can we apply it today as a listener? Yeah. So in order to do this, we have to break apart because who's like, well, what do you mean by who? And, and, and eventually what happened is within that firm that I'm so thankful that they gave a blank canvas for us to work on things. I just eventually realized that there was a limitation. This message about who not what is so personal and frankly, at times invasive 
um, which there's got to be probably a better word for me to use than that. But you can't deal in the development of who we are without developing, without dealing with who we are. I mean, I can't just have a conversation about leadership techniques and skills and tips and tricks and address who we are. You, we have to go deeper. And one of the things I realized is whether it was at the old consulting firm or the new company that I was working for, because of a variety of things, some of them having to do with politics in those organizations, some of them having to do with specific leaders in those organizations, I was never going to be able to go as directly at the who, not what principle as I wanted to. And so my wife and I, we had, uh, we had three kids at that time. We were, you know, she was 34 when we got married. I was 36. We were on the clock. We were cranking out babies as fast as you, as fast as you could. And so, <laughs> you know, when you've got three kids under the age of six, it sounds like the perfect time to start a company, right? <laughs> that's, that's really the time to, to go for it. But I'm super thankful. You just have so much free time, yeah, free time, no risk. Everything's great. Uh, but I'm so thankful to that company that I was working for because they were very, they were very generous and we didn't spend that money. We put it away um, thinking that there might be a point where, you know, I wanted to try to make a go of it. And so we we basically said, okay, um, we've got a year to, you know, eat food and live indoors without having income. Let's see if we can make this happen. So I left the company to start my own company at that point. That was six years ago now. And that's when we said we're going to go directly at the issue of who, not what, in a way that at least I'm not familiar that anybody else in the industry is going at it. And so that's what we've been doing ever since. So I was never, I was never a kid. I never had a lemonade stand as a kid. You know, I wasn't that guy that dreamed about having a big company or working for himself. I just went out to do this work because it's the only way that I could see to get the really chance to dig into the, to the guts of this issue in a really, you know, unrestrained way. And so that's what we're able to do now. We're able to work with individuals and organizations to really help them understand how who they are affects uh, how effective they are as leaders. And so ultimately then we begin to we need to break down what do you, what do you mean by who? When you say who you are is three quarters of leadership, then we begin to to break that down. That's fantastic. Now Start explaining this so you have to know who you are, and then it talks about the inwardly sound and the others focused. Yes, yeah. Those are the two core concepts of this, correct? Mm-hmm. So, so those when we did that research years ago, those were the pieces that were driving seventy percent of the variability on the assessment: being inwardly sound and being others focused. And if you think about how we invest in leadership development across the globe. The question would be this, what percentage of our time, energy, and dollars are going towards helping leaders become more inwardly sound and others focused? Now, I don't know what that percentage is, but I'm telling you, whatever it is, it's grossly too low. Because most of our leadership development is focused on what leaders do around vision and strategy and resource allocation and execution, motivation and development of talent culture and communication. None of those things are bad. Those are all important, but they're all fueled and funded by who. And so it's, think of it, you know, the the symbol that we use with our clients is a tree and who you are is the roots. 
And we don't see that quite as clearly. We see the things that leaders do. That's more obvious to our, to our eye. But what's going on underneath the ground is essential to having a really productive and healthy tree. And so if three quarters of our effectiveness as leaders comes from, statistically speaking, um, and I can go into that detail as much as you want to, <laughs> we don't want to bore people with stats, but, but the reality is if we're not, I would encourage every listener to look at what your leadership development plan is for the next 12 months or 36 months. First of all, I hope you have one. But secondly, how much of that is focused on developing yourself as a human being, becoming more inwardly sound and others focused? And, you know, when we talk about, to maybe put a little finer point on it, when we talk about inwardly sound, we talk about being secure and settled. So it's kind of the opposite of insecurity. By the way, Dave, I don't know if you've ever followed an insecure leader. But this would be, if you look up the definition of the word pain in the dictionary, you'll find following an insecure leader. That is a, that is a very rough go that many people have had, have been through. Um, yes, it's not fun. I have no an insecure leader before. No, the ton of, uh, ton of wasted energy where you're just trying to satisfy somebody's insecurities instead of focusing on the client, instead of focusing on what's best for the organization. And, and that's a, yep. that creates all kinds of inefficiencies, which is why they get lesser results. That's the connection. Yeah. You have to get to that Ronald Reagan mentality, working with a leader like that and just be like, I don't care who gets a credit. Let's just get it done. It doesn't matter who gets a credit. Let's just get it done. If you're behind an insecure leader, that's how I found. If you get a better way, let's share it now. Because I, I had that a couple of times in 43 years, and it was not a fun situation. I mean, if you're working for an insecure leader, I would say this. Number one, admit it. Be conscious of yourself. Now, it's real easy to say, go find a different leader. But people don't always have that type of mobility available to them, depending on their financial situation, their family situation. And so if you're working for an insecure leader, if, if you're expecting something awesome, and then you say, oh, wait, I'm working for an insecure leader. It is healthy to manage your expectations down <laughs> because you're not going to get something great in most cases out of somebody who's insecure. And so that would be the first step. Eventually, I'd love for people to move on and find a different opportunity. But to keep yourself sane, first part of that is just confessing the reality that's in front of you. And then depending on you know, if they're unhealthy enough in that space, it's a, you know, if it falls into the category of toxic, then you've got to, you got to really actively manage it and really reduce your expectations, which is not just about emotional health. You can actually have a better relationship with somebody who's toxic by not trying to push them into greatness because they're not going to understand it. I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here. Just to, <laughs> <laughs> um, And before yeah. you go on, you're using a term very well, but I want you to define it before we go forward. When you talk about inwardly sound, mm -hmm. we're not just talking about professional development. We're just oh, not talking no. about the professional aspect. Define inwardly sound because that's a huge core concept people need to get before they move forward yeah. because it's not just professional. It's, I mean, it's not at a certain level. I almost say it's not at all professional, meaning you might see yourself as somebody who's different at home and different at work. But the reality is you're bringing the whole of who you are either place. And you might try to put on a different coat to bring a different aspect of yourself. But if you're insecure, you're insecure. I mean, there's not, you can, you can fake it, but you're going to be found out over time. So when we talk about inwardly sound, we talk about, I say five and a half things. I'll explain the half in a moment, but we talk about being secure and settled, self-aware, 
principled, holistically healthy, purposeful. And that other half is emotionally mature. And the reason it's half is because emotionally, emotional maturity has a f- one foot in both the inwardly sound and the other's focus. That's the other half of who. It has a foot in both worlds. So that's how we define inwardly sound. Yeah, it's that. And if you were to define it for me with one word, it's balance. It's having it where, you know, if me and you have something going on in our personal life, mm-hmm. it's going to carry over into our professional sure. life. And if sure. our mental state isn't right, you know, our finances aren't going to be right. So yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And then likewise with others focused, define that because the others focus, it doesn't mean you're just a doormat trying to please others and make them happy. There's a balance to that in leadership as well. Correct. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great distinction. It's not about being a doormat. So others focused means to, to, you know, you're not supposed to use a definition, a word of a definition, uh, you're not supposed to use a word to define itself, but it's about where is your focus? It's on yourself or is it on others? And so when we coach our uh, executive teams that we work with, we talk about being attentive, curious, empathic, humble. Agapone. Agapone is a Greek term. Um, the technical translation is being loving, which freaks a lot of people out in the business space. Um, the definition that we use is being, you know, service to and care for others. That is unconditional, consistent, and selfless. And so the idea is, it's an act of, it's an act of service, but it's not an act of being a doormat. It's, it's, is, is my perspective towards others one that constantly comes back to dignity and respect, whether they deserve it or not. So I go into great detail around agapone because it's not an English word. The reason that we can't, the reason that we don't use love is because in the English, we don't, we don't have enough, we don't have enough different variations on that word. And so we go to the Greek because it allows us to have a very specific meaning of it because, you know, I don't, I don't love, you know, a candy bar and my son in the same way, <laughs> but yet in, yeah, in English, would be bad. right. Yeah. In English, we just have the one word for that. So we, we go to the Greek for that. And then finally, there's that other half of emotionally mature, which is a part about, you know, that, that's a point about how your others focus as well. So between inwardly sound and others focus, the, the way that we have built this content in this model is to be able to go as deep as somebody wants to, but also to have it provide value if even if they don't go so deep. And so you don't have to be, you know, a PhD leadership expert if you just walk no, walk away with nothing but who not what. Three quarters of my effectiveness is a function of who I am. That's going to provide a certain amount of value. Now, if you want to go deeper and say, well, what do you mean by who and what do you mean by what? And we've got We've got things we talk about in the what of leadership as well. But now we're saying who is inwardly sound and others focus. And we can even continue to go deeper in that. And so this ultimately is the work that we end up doing with executive teams is we end up spending time in each one of these areas that we've just listed off around being inwardly sound and others focus with the crazy idea. And this is the part where you know, I couldn't do this very well without starting this company is that we actually want to help people become. We're not trying to just keep teach a bunch of tips and tricks and techniques and not against those things, but I am against those things when they're not in the hands of a well-developed who. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of the difference between a knife in the hand of a surgeon and a knife in the hand of a, of a thief. There's both knives. (laughs) They do very different things. And so ultimately 
if we get into the idea of, of techniques and, and tips around leadership, we want to be doing it in the context of a well-developed who. And, and frankly, that takes time to deep dive, to look at how self-aware am I? Um, Tasha, Tasha Yurik estimates that 10 to 15% of leaders are self-aware. I mean, think about that. That's a, that should scare all of us to think. And that the higher up you go, the less likely you are that you're self-aware. So what do we do to help bring a healthy um, dose of self-awareness. Now we're not going to bludgeon people. We're not trying. <laughs> we're not trying to injure them, but we want to help them get a get a clearer picture on who they are, for example. And so, uh, our work tends to spend um, ninety days on each one of these things. So we we take we take teams and, and individuals on these things we call leadership journeys because it's hard and it's difficult. Um, but we're actually trying to help them become more well-developed human beings because it will create a better leadership result in the end. Yeah. So you have a longer term relationship with them, but change doesn't happen overnight. And if you're looking for a quick, okay, do this, this, and this, and you're gonna be a great leader, that would just be foolishness. Because if you think of anything in your life or my life or Tim's life, it takes consistency. It takes repetition. It takes to build that habit. And, you know, I think was it Aristotle, I said, excellent isn't an act, but it's a habit. Mm-hmm. And being able to work long-term with those companies, I can see so much value in that because then you can continue the growth. And And wasn't it Ben Franklin? He'd pick one skill and he'd work on it. And then once he felt like he had a handle on it, he'd move on to the next skill. So that's kind of what you're doing, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and, and actually, you know, I, we're really careful even about using the word skill. Most people use that. It's not a bad word, but we want to make sure that people are picking up the rocks and looking underneath because we want to make sure that they're constantly looking at motive and perspective. So it's not just, a, for, so right now we're just finishing up the last 90 days. I've got a, a couple of different uh, executive groups who've been looking at the issue of being empathic. And for some people, they're a lot further oh, along. That's a tough it. word, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a hard word. Well, and, and some people are much better in terms of how well developed they are in being empathic and having empathy than others. And the people who struggle with it, we want to ask the question. We want to help them ask the question, why? Why do I struggle with this? And th- there's there's myriad answers to that. There's not just one answer to that. But ultimately, we want to say um, is there a worldview thing that's at play here? Is there something I picked up from mom or dad growing up that makes it difficult for me to empathize with others now? Is there something that happened to me in my early 20s that gave me a perspective that uh, it makes it difficult for me to connect with others? Sometimes, yeah, there's a, just a small bit of skill, but ultimately we want to look, we want to look deeper and say, let's make sure we're looking at our motives. Let's make sure we're looking at our perspectives. And as you said, that takes longer. That's not a, uh, that's not an afternoon talk. Now we do education and that's a whole different, that's a whole different ball because it's, it's, we can do education around these things in a relatively short period of time. But if we want to do transformation, if we want to do something, we're really helping that person become a more well-developed who, then that almost always takes uh, a longer time of engagement. Yeah, and I think it's well worth it, and it's well worth the investment and time and and effort. So the other thing that stuck out what you're saying is when you were describing this who we're supposed to be and others focused, 
I mean, again, we have listeners from all over the world and different backgrounds and worldviews and belief systems, but this sounds exactly to me, I, I couldn't help but think how similar it was to the biblical model of Christ, his leadership style and his strength, but humility and his, you know, kingship, yeah. but yet he still served us and his leadership style is pretty much what you're embodying. So I think you're on to something. <laughs> well, I can say that my investigation of leadership started there. And I, then I kind of went out. And isn't it interesting that as we were collecting data and the research came back, we weren't looking for a model of leadership that mirrored his life, mirrored who he is. But that's what the data said. And so I think I think one of the parts that the that the community of people who, who pays attention to Jesus misses sometimes is there's a lot of talk about servant leadership and there's strong connections between servant leadership and this idea of being others focused, certainly. But I think that, that the community of people who will look to Jesus as a model misses the part of how inwardly sound he was of how clear he was about who he was, about how secure he was in who he was. Not somebody who was seeking after the favor of other people, somebody who could 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 take criticism and be clear about who he was, somebody who was self-aware and principled. I and I think what happens oftentimes in the in the Christian church is that leaders they talk about servant leadership so much and people are going out to to serve and lead but they don't, they're not inwardly sound. And so they're still looking to the people that they're serving to give them something back because they've got a hole to fill there and they haven't done step zero. It's not step one. It's step zero is working on becoming more inwardly sound so that you can be others focused so that you can serve. And, and I, there's so much said about the servant leadership model and there's great data out there about how effective it is but I would suggest to anybody um, who might consider it is that being inwardly sound is critically important and it enables that. It's very important not to skip that step. I agree completely. And I, the older I get, the more I see it. You know, the Bible talks about this cup running over. You know, the Holy Spirit pours in us and we're mm-hmm. supposed to pour out to other people. But if our cup's empty, we have nothing to give. <laughs> That's right. If you need to borrow money, I can't give it to you if I don't have it. Yeah. If you need love, I can't give it to you unless I have it. And then what's going to happen is you're going to be let down and I'm going to be exhausted trying to give you something I don't have. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it doesn't matter what aspect of life you can't give it if you don't have it. So yeah. we'll keep going, brother. I don't want to <laughs> cut it short. I don't want to go long. I want to make sure we're in all the points. So now you have this growing principle of the who, not what being inwardly sound and others focused so if we don't, if there's anything else you need to say, let's say it. I don't want to skip anything, but at this point, if if we've covered it, what do you think as a listener we can do to grow, to become more inwardly sound, to become more others focused? What are some practical steps for growth? Okay. Let me, before I direct, before I address that question directly, there's one connection point I want to make for folks, especially those who might be sitting there saying, this sounds like a nice story. And I know you're telling me that you have research that points in this direction, but is there anybody else that's saying this and connect the dots for me? So let's do that for a moment and then we'll get into some of the ways that we can grow in that. Is that, is that all right? No, it sounds great. Do it. Okay. 
So in uh, a few years ago, HBR published an article that was based out of a consulting firm in Minneapolis called KRW. And they were showing statistical connection between how well-developed leaders and leadership teams are and their financial performance. Like literally that was the connection point. And so they, they studied a really interesting set of things. Um, and it's not very often you'll find somebody that's going to study this in the business, business space. But they looked at the issues of integrity, responsibility, compassion, and forgiveness. And I, when I saw that research, I almost fell over because like somebody actually went in to the corporate space and said, we're going to measure forgiveness and compassion. Wow. I never expected I would see somebody else doing that. So here's a really interesting thing. They found almost a five-fold greater return on assets from leaders and leadership teams that had those four qualities well-developed than, than the bottom 10% of those that didn't. Now, here's a really interesting connection point I want to make for everybody who's listening. Responsibility and integrity. That's about being inwardly sound. Forgiveness and compassion is about how you interact with others. That's being others focused. You see, we use, they use different language in that study, but it points in the exact same two directions. Human Synergistics is a company that's, that's done work in the organizational development, people development space for many decades. And I got a chance to meet with them because they were working with a common client. We were combining our ideas together. And uh, David Byram is, a, is a, great, uh, 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 a great person to have collaborated with with that group. And he got a chance to read an early manuscript of the book. And he said to me, hey, when I'm reading about the research that you are a part of, I felt like I was reading our own, our own documentation. And I said, well, David, tell me about what you guys have from a data standpoint. And he walked through all the data that pointed in the exact same two directions. And I said, well, tell me how many data points you have, though. And he goes, well, first of all, our data cuts across every, every demographic you can imagine. So this, our, our data all points in the same direction. It doesn't matter age. It doesn't matter where you are in the organization. It doesn't matter what continent you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or female. None of that matters. It all points in the same direction. And so I'm like leaning on the edge of my seat. Yes, but yeah, David, tell me how many data points you have. Because we had 20,000. Uh, when Vanessa published that data, we had 20,000, which is plenty to reach a statistically significant conclusion. David looked at me and he said, we have 2 million. We have 2 million data points spanning decades in every industry that you can ever imagine that all points in the wow. same direction. So it's not just, and there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other organizations. Gallup has done research that points in this direction, but the, the connective dot thing to understand here is not just that there's other research out there that points in this direction too. But I think as we get ready to head into, so what are some of the things we can do? I think it's important to understand why. Why does the who, not what principle exist? And so let's start with those two ideas that we've been talking about, inwardly sound and others focused. When I am following somebody who has those two things, I see them, rightfully so, they are more trustworthy to me. When somebody is, um, what did you say, balanced? I think it was the word you used. Um, if somebody's balanced and stable, if you can count on them, if they don't get rocked by the, the waves of challenge that come at us in all number of different directions. And then on top of that, 
if they're showing up at work for the benefit of the people that they are leading and not just for their own pocketbook and not just for their own egos and not just for their own next move in the company, if they're inwardly sound and others focused, we trust those leaders. When those leaders ask us to run through a wall because they're trustworthy, we say, okay, just tell me which part of the wall to run through. <laughs> Cause I know you're not trying to manipulate me. I know you're not just about yourself. You're saying, and you're for me. So, okay, tell me, tell me where to go. The next part is the part that doesn't get talked about enough. And that is we are far more engaged with people that we trust than people than with people that we don't trust. So let me ask you a question, Dave. Do you want to do a little exercise to make the point about the connection between trust and engagement? Sure, man. Let's do it. All right. And hopefully our listeners might go ahead and do this along. I'll, uh, I'll say it in such a way so that they can uh, pick up into this as well. And so here's what we're going to do. The first thing I need you to do, Dave, and anybody who cares to play along there listening at home, um, I want you to think of somebody you really, really do not trust. Am I going to have to say this name? No, 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 I will not make you say the name out loud, but you need to have (laughs) that person. You need to have that person in mind. Do you have somebody? Yes. It usually does not take people a really long time to come up with that name, I'll say. All right. So as we said, you've got somebody in mind who you really, really don't trust. Okay. I want you to pretend that you're at your spot wherever you normally wherever you normally get your email, whether it be on your phone or on your computer. So you're at that normal This is normal easy. Spot. I'm right here right now. Okay, you're right there. All right. So, ding. Okay, you hear that. If you've got an audible noise that comes in, tells you you've got an email, I'm going to read you an email that you're receiving from this person that you really, really do not trust. Okay, okay. here we go. The subject line is, you have been chosen. I have chosen you to take on some new responsibilities. They won't be easy but I think they are a real fit with your skills. This will be a big help to our team, and I'm confident that this will advance your career. In the end, even though this will be difficult, you're really going to benefit from this. I promise. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being coming out of your skin excited, and 1 being, I'm deleting this right now, I want you to write down the number that you are right now. Okay. Okay. Now that's the first visualization. We're going to do another one and we're going to switch it up a little bit. So now I'd like you to think of somebody, Dave, that you really, really do trust. Okay. Hopefully that person came to mind fairly quickly. Yes, Um, sir. All right. Great. And so now we're going to do a very similar exercise. Again, I want you to visualize that you're you're at your computer or your phone, wherever you normally get your, your email. The notification comes up, you have an email, and now I'm going to read an email to you from the person that you really, really do trust. Okay, are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. The subject is, you have been chosen. I have chosen you to take on some new responsibilities. They won't be easy, but I think they are a real fit with your skills. This will be a big help to our team, and I'm confident that this will advance your career. In the end, even though this will be difficult, you're really going to benefit from this, I promise. Now, scale of 1 to 10, 
10 being coming out of your skin excited, one being I'm going to delete this right away, write down your number. Okay. Okay. So we switched it up, but the only thing that we changed, obviously, is the person who was delivering the message. So the second time was somebody that you really trusted. Let me ask you a very important question, Dave. Did you get a smaller number the second time? No. Of course you didn't, because nobody ever has in the history of this exercise. Unless they are a liar. <laughs> yes. Never, never, never do we get a smaller number. So tell me what your first number was from the person that you really, really don't trust. Maybe a two. Maybe a two. Maybe a two. All right. What was your second number? Eight, because I'm a super skeptical person. <laughs> well, that's not that skeptical. Okay. So you're really close to the average of what happens with this exercise. If you go from two to eight, two to four is a 100% increase. Four to six is a 200% increase. Six to eight is a 300% increase. Roughly on average, when I do this exercise with all the groups that I get a chance to speak to or work with, the increase between number one and number two is about 275%. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. We changed one thing. We did not change a word of that email. Not a word. The only thing we changed is whether or not you trust the person who's delivering the message. And your engagement went up 300%. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, that is consistent with every group that I talk to. So now let's get back to, we're connecting the dots on here on why does who, not what exist. So start at the bottom left, moving up in, a, in an exponential curve to the right. We call this the arc of leadership. I'm inwardly sound and others focused, which makes me more trustworthy because I'm stable and sane and you can count on me. And on top of that, I'm here for you. I'm not just here for myself. So we move from being inwardly sound and others focused that I am a more trustworthy leader. When I am more trustworthy, you as a follower, me as a follower, we are more engaged. And you just showed that with that exercise. Mm -hmm. You moved up 300% in your engagement when the person went from being not trustworthy to trustworthy. And then the final step is this. There are over 300 studies worldwide that show a positive and statistically significant connection between engagement and results. So if somebody ever says, you know, it's one thing for us to have discovered that the who, not what principle existed, but that didn't explain why it existed. What we're talking about now is why does it exist? It's because inwardly sound and others focused leaders are more trusted. Greater trustworthiness in the leader creates greater engagement and greater engagement in the follower creates a better result. And so one of the things that when we work with our executive teams, There's oftentimes this question around trust, which is, how do we build trust with our teams? How do we build trust with the people we're leading? And my response to them is, that is not a bad question, but there is a much better question that I hope you will start to ask. And that is not, how do we build trust, but how do we become more trustworthy? So that's a different equation. That's an equation between you and the mirror and said, how am I going to conduct myself today? and tomorrow, and the next week in a way that makes me more worthy of the trust of the people that I'm leading. 
And so we want to do that work in inwardly sound and others focused to help leaders become more, I say, legitimately trustworthy. This isn't smoke and mirrors. We're not trying to get your followers to think about you a particular way. We're trying to help you become. See, once you become, it's harder work on the front side, but it's way easier than trying to do perception management for the next 30 years. You'd much rather be inwardly sound and others focused than waking up every day saying, I got to try to figure out a way to make sure that other people think that I'm inwardly sound and others focused. Let's just do the hard work of becoming and then do maintenance along the way rather than spending the rest of our lives trying to manage perception of something that we are not. And so this is the crazy work that we are in. And I say crazy because um, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's not the norm in the leadership development space. Because if you look at articles, whether it be at Sloan, HBR, anywhere else, you so often will see this kind of hammering of the concept of skills. And again, I'm not against skills and leadership requires skills. But if we only talk about skills and we don't talk about who is behind those skills, if we don't talk about the motives and intentions and perspectives of who those leaders are behind it, then we're not getting down to the core of who we are. And that's three quarters of leadership. So we have to go there. And that's why we started this company. That's awesome, brother. And yeah, I totally spot on accurate. I mean, you can teach almost anybody anything, skills. Mm-hmm. But that core and that development of yourself, that was beautiful to think about you looking in the mirror, you just going to put on the fake makeup or are you going to change yourself from the inside out? Yeah. And it's hard. And it's hard work. I tell people all the time, like, this is not easy. This is hard. It's confrontive. But what is the consequence if we ignore this truth? And the consequence is extremely expensive if we ignore this truth. It's extremely expensive. We will waste time. We will waste energy. We will waste millions and millions of dollars if we don't keep in mind that three quarters of our effectiveness as leaders is about who we are, not what we do. Yeah, and I got to be careful how I phrase what I'm about to say. But how many times do you and I consult companies and the leaders saying what they want And they're saying, these are our goals and I'll do anything to get there. But really, they're the problem and they're unwilling to change themselves. (laughs) Many times, many times. And and, and just to connect the dots a little bit more here, I said earlier that we use a tree as our analogy in the roots. You know, I want to be really clear that we're not saying that what leaders do is unimportant. I'm just saying it's far less important than where we know if we take a if we take a survey of the scope of leadership content and research that's out there it is almost exclusively in the areas of the what of leadership vision strategy resource allocation execution motivation talent development driving culture and and communication i love all those things you know we've talked this whole time about who i would talk a whole nother podcast about all the what of leadership because i'm passionate about that side too but so many people want to zero in on the what because it, it's because it's frankly, it's less personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is it also gets you a lesser return. So what happens in, and I just want to just do one more thing before we get into what are the, some of the things you can do, because I want to make sure that people understand who is connected to what it's not who versus what it's not who instead of what it's who like the roots of a tree are connected to the rest of the tree. Mm-hmm. And so let's just take, for example, the issue of, let's take two issues are on others focused, humility and curiosity. Am I curious and am I humble? When I'm curious and humble, is it hard to see, because I don't think it is, 
how that would impact my opportunity to be a strategic thinker. Because if I'm curious about other people's ideas and what they have to say, how they see things and what's important to them, whether it be a client or a fellow employee in the organization, I get a broader range of ideas when I show up as a curious leader. When I'm a humble leader, I'm not concerned about getting all the credit. You know, there are, there are certain leaders. I've seen this. I've seen this absolutely play out where one leader was lacking either humility or personal security, back to the insecurity thing. And so they were purposely excluding certain people from strategic conversations. They didn't want them in there because they were either not their ego was getting in the way or their insecurity was getting in the way. And so they eliminated the very voices that should have been in the room for the strategic conversation. If you do that, if you don't have the right people in the room, your strategy is going to be limited. Your ideas and possibilities are going to be limited. So I just share that example because at a certain level, you're like, well, what does thinking strategically have to do with who you are? Well, that's what it has to do. If you don't have all of the possibilities in front of you because you're not curious and you're cut off to ideas that you should be listening to others, or if your ego and insecurity won't let somebody else be in the room, you're going to be a less strategic leader. So that's just an example, just one simple example of how who connects into what and why the who is responsible for three quarters of your effectiveness because of how much it influences what happens in the what of leadership. So that's the that's the whole story, kind of connecting it all together, not only that it does exist, but how, who, not, what plays out in real life. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you for that description and that connection, because that's important. If we don't have the base foundation, why bother moving on? It's like yeah. when you know something or you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no, I really get it. You know, there's like levels of knowing something, yeah, right? True. So I don't know how to explain any other way, but when you have those light bulb moments and you know how to apply it, those are beautiful moments. Yeah, I I agree. And we've, you know, had a few of those along the way. And, and frankly, what's, what's really fun in the work I do is I get to learn from our clients all the time because we put the ideas of, you know, for example, we were just talking about being curious and they'll say, well, what have other teams done to become more curious? And I'm able to share with them what all of our other clients have done that was effective in becoming more curious. But then they'll come up with other ideas that I haven't heard before. And these are genius. And then like every consultant, I get to share those ideas with the next client. And so (laughs) part of the, you know, part of the joy of this work and, um, you know, back to things that there've been so many things in, in my story, Dave, that I couldn't have orchestrated. And one of them is Mike Kane, who I mentioned earlier. Um, just a huge influential leader in my life. He goes on and becomes the head of a multinational based in Australia. And I finish writing the book, The Only Leaders Worth Following, and I send it to him and I said, hey, give me some critical feedback. And he didn't say, I, I really expected him to give me some tips, but all he did was say like, good job, you finally wrote the, <laughs> you finally wrote the book. But about a month later, he called me up and said, I want you to come speak to my executive team. And so I hopped on a plane and I and I flew I flew down under and that was a whole new experience for me doing international work as a consultant. I hadn't done that previously. But we spent an afternoon with his team. And I felt like it had gone really well. Uh, actually, I talked to him afterwards. I said, How did, what did you think about that? He goes, well, that was better than I thought it was going to be. I'm like, mm, how do I take that? <laughs> Is that a compliment? I'm not sure. But... 
Um, one of the things that was really interesting is that the person who was in charge of his North American division when it wasn't able to be at the meeting. And so here's what that led to. That led to a conversation between Mike and I about how do we get that leader up to speed. And then Mike said, well, maybe you just go do with the North American team what you did with us down here in Australia. And within two weeks, Mike had said, let's, let's have you be our leadership development consultant, and I want you to work around the world with our various leadership teams. So, and so this is a little bit like, you know, when I was a kid, at a, we had a Snoopy fishing pole. I had one of those. Okay. All right. So I honestly, I loved it. I'd spent hours yes. casting it in yes. the street. So this story is a little bit like I had a Snoopy fishing pole and we caught a whale <laughs> because right out of the gate, as we're getting the company started, we had somebody who now Mike understood the message already because he had been a part of the consulting firm way back when. But on top of that, you had somebody, Mike is the most secure leader I've ever been around. He like, He's taken a chance on our organization. He knows the research, but he's taken on a chance on us that we can do it. And then for the last six years, we've been in Southeast Asia. We've been in Australia. We've been here in North America. We've been all over, all over the place with different divisions of the organization, working with about 250 different leaders within the organization and getting a chance to both share with them what we know, but also learn from them, as I just said. And, you know, I never could have arranged for the head of North America to not be at that meeting. But the fact that he wasn't at that meeting led us to a further dialogue. And now it's led to this breadth of experience that, I mean, I couldn't have paid for in a million years if I wanted to arrange all that. So we are so thankful. And what's happening now is we're starting to uh, branch out and and work with other organizations now, um, other than just that one, so that we can take all this learning about how do you actually help somebody move in these spaces? How do you help somebody become more inwardly sound and others focused? Um, and is, is that even possible? Which, by the way, <laughs> spoiler alert, it is. Amen. It's, it's possible because if there's research that shows that it is. There's a, there's a misconception that if we're at past the age of 30 that we can't grow and develop. Now, it's true that the arc of our development is pretty steep in our earlier years. But it's, um, it's, it's not accurate to say that we can't grow and develop. Sometimes it's a little harder. But think about this. Think about it in your own experience, Dave. As, as your influence has grown, as you have grown in your level of experience, a 10% increase in who you are, a higher development in you, when you have significant influence, has a much bigger impact throughout any organization. And so even if we're not moving 180 degrees, which most people won't move 180, like we're going to move degrees F, but even a small amount of improvement when you're at the, when you're at the peak of your influence, the higher your level of influence in an organization, the bigger impact that five or 10 or 15% movement has happened. And, and we've gotten a chance, not only in other people's research, but we've had a chance to see that there was one division of the company that we worked with and they were they were struggling. Um, they were in the bottom quartile of McKinsey's organizational health index. And um, it was right about the time, again, more things that I can't orchestrate. It was right when we started working with them that they took this data. So I didn't organize or I didn't organize for McKinsey to come in, but they are already doing that. We got to work with that group for four years, five years. And at the end of the five years, they had moved from the bottom quartile to the top quartile. And there's all types uh, of mm-hmm. financial implications for that. Now I will tell you we weren't the only thing that they were doing. 
they were working on lots of things. I mean, that was a, that was a wake up for them and they had to figure a lot of things out. But many executives in that group came to us and said, the who, not what work played a meaningful role in us moving from bottom quartile to top quartile. And the credit for that does not go to us. And it doesn't go to the research. I made a huge mistake for a long time saying that this research was the hero of the story. The research isn't the hero of the story. It's the people who put it into practice. It's the leaders who are willing to get bloody and muddy working on themselves. Those are the heroes because that's really hard work. And if they're willing to do that, then that is where it's at. And back to the idea of can people grow and develop when they're older in life? Almost every single one of those, I would say 80% of the leaders that we worked with of those, uh, of, of the group that was in that division were above the age of 40. So, you know, whether it's somebody else's research or statistical analysis, when people are willing to do what those leaders were willing to do, they were willing to dig in, they were willing to acknowledge that who mattered, they were willing to look in the mirror and do hard work, and they got an absolutely measurable result back for their organization. So credit to them for being willing to dig in. Yeah. And that's so funny. We're so similar, man. In a lot of ways, like I'm listening to you, we were joking about that off camera, but I don't know if you know this, but the slogan for the podcast is listen, do repeat for life. And like, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's the, that's, <laughs> and then like what I'm, what, what you're saying is if you, you know, there used to be GI Joe, knowledge yeah. is power. Well, knowledge not applied is just knowledge. You yeah. have to apply that. I love the Bible verse that says a talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. Means talk's cheap, baby. Get get going and do something. So, so great. So that that's what we're going to talk about next. Right? Do it, yeah, man. Let's go. Let's. This is a perfect transition. I'm ruining the Bible. God forgive me. I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be slanging God's holy word. But that's what. That's how I read it. Hey, sucker! Stop! Stop being lazy. Stop making excuses. Go do it. That's great. That's great. All right. So how do we do it? Teach us how. I'm going I'm to give you a, a, a few specific examples. Now, all told, there were 11 pieces of inwardly sound and others focused. And so I won't, we won't go into all 11, but I'm going to choose three just to show people how simple it can be. But please, let's not confuse simple with easy or simple with not valuable. Okay. This is incredibly valuable. It's also incredibly difficult. So we share with you some of the best things that our clients have done and are in the process of doing. And actually, before you go on, yeah, one you you make you make some great points. And when you were talking about the percentile of growth, mm-hmm. if you're listening and you didn't really understand that or skip through, it, I was like, I don't really get that. When Tim was talking about a percentile of growth, think of it this way: Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, you know, Elon Musk, some of the richest men in the world, and it could be women. I'm just pick those three, right? Yep. So anyways, if they made 15% on their money and I made 15% on my annual income. <laughs> I'm just going to guess, Dave, these would be two different numbers. Oh, no yeah. Greatly. Okay. So we can grow. And that's the thing that's it's awesome because God never says with our income to give us a set amount. He says to give us a percentage to just show your thankfulness, the tithe, what you call yeah. it. And it's like that with our life skills. We shouldn't be just tithing our money. We should be tithing our life and our skills because this is a gift of life and it's the, the present, they call it, the present. It's a gift for today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we should be giving all of ourselves to God, to love God and love ourselves. And going back to your principle, 
uh, Tim, you know, it's like others focused. What's a great commandment? To love God and to love others as thyself. So yeah. everything Tim's saying is just spot on, biblical, solid. And even if you're listening now and you're, you don't believe in God, our perspective is all truth comes from God. And everything we read in the Bible, we can see lay out. But even if you don't believe that right now, listen to what Tim's saying. Do it, repeat it, and you're going to have a great life. It's, it's undeniable. Well, and, and, and here's something about that that I've always wondered about this, you know, and I think, I think we were recording when I mentioned it earlier. We weren't setting out to, to determine anything regarding the leadership model of Jesus. That wasn't even on the radar. It just happens to turn out the truth points in that direction. And so, you know, something else that somebody might consider is this. We're, we're going to talk about some of the things that you can do to actually begin to grow and develop yourself in some of these ways. If these things feel like they have a connection, I'm, I'm saying that there is a direct connection here back to the person and life of Jesus, even though that had nothing to do with the research that we, we didn't start out trying to prove any of that. It just lines up. It could be that an experience towards applying some of this might cause a listener to consider, hey, maybe there's some other parts of this book that might have truth in it as well. And if I try out being inwardly sound and others focused and I get a better leadership result, that's great. I want that for you in your business. I want that for you in your family. But if you've got questions about the Bible and you're like, well, if I tried out some biblical principles, <laughs> if I followed the example of Jesus and it produced a great result, maybe there's some other parts of the Bible to consider as well. So I'll just, before we get into some of the details, I'll throw that out there as, as an idea to consider. I agree. And all my listeners have heard me say that for two seasons. So I love you, man. <laughs> keep preaching. Keep speaking truth. All, all, right. all truth comes from God. It's right. All right. It's there, man. I love it. All right. So let's dig in on, we're going to look at two aspects of others focused and some things that people can do. And then we're going to look at one under, under inwardly sound. So let's let's start with uh, let's start with empathic. Um, you know, it, I'll share with something. There's a friend of mine named Jeff Martin, really smart, incredible guy. He pointed this out to me about uh, four months ago, and it really blew me away. So, uh, shortest verse in the Bible: Jesus wept, and this was a this was around the death of Lazarus. And it's really interesting because Jesus was about to raise Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus. So, why would he cry? He knew what the story was going to end. And my buddy, Jeff, he pointed out to me, he said, empathy. Jesus was empathizing with the sorrow of Lazarus's family. And he had really no other reason to cry. They were sad. He was about to end all the tears <laughs> in that moment and bring, and he knew that, but still he wept. And I just thought, you know, again, credit to Jeff Martin for my buddy for pointing that out. So empathy is there. And there's lots of other, even more profound ways we see empathy in the scriptures. But let's talk about growing and developing that idea of being empathic. One of the ways that we coach our leaders on developing that muscle of greater empathy. And by the way, let me confess, my worst, my worst, I'm terrible at this. And I don't mean the action, I mean being empathic. So it's very good that my wife and children are not on this podcast right now. They would have... <laughs> story after story about how this is an area that I need to work on. So 100%, um, I need to work on it. But but see, even though I'm not great at it, and I need to grow a lot in it, I can still share what our clients are doing to be great at it. And so I don't have to be great at it to pass this message along. 
So we encourage them to do something called the 300 second pause. And this idea originally came from the idea of onboarding new people to the organization. Now we're so familiar with the organizations that we're in and leading and, you know, speaking now particularly of work situations, not at home, but you can think of other parallels for there. And what is it like when somebody walks in that door the first time Uh, I was responsible for that first day experience for people when I was working inside as a leadership development manager. And I didn't always think about this the way that I should have, because this place is old hat to the rest of us. This is where we show up every day. This is just normal. How many first days at a new job do you have in your career? Now, a lot more than people had 30 years ago, but it's still not a really huge number. And so I encourage people to think, you take that as a specific example, but it can be applied more broadly. What are all the things that somebody is thinking and feeling before they walk through that door for the very first time on day one? Now, granted, people have different personalities, so there's a range of things. But the idea here is that what if I were, as a, as a leader of an organization, to sit in my car for thir- 300 seconds, which, by the way, is five minutes, <laughs> for 300 seconds, and literally imagine all the things that somebody might be going through as they start a new first day, a new first job. Now, I walk in the building. Do you think I'm going to be interacting with that person differently than if I hadn't taken those 300 seconds? You bet. Because now I'm thinking about where are they coming from? And and this applies not just to first days. Any place there's significant emotion, there's the opportunity for empathy. So if you're getting ready to be in a conversation where you know there's going to be some emotion, you know there's going to be some challenge, what if you were to think of the person in the room that you least get along with, that you least enjoy being around, that you least connect with, and imagine putting yourself in their shoes? Imagine, now you don't have to agree with them. Empathy is not about agreeing. It's about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes long enough to see what they see, feel what they feel, and then express those feelings back to them to see if you're right. You might be wrong. You might need to adjust. But the idea is I actually go to an emotional space within me that connects with an emotional space that they might be in. And so you can apply this. And and time and time again, we have people say like, okay, I'm heading into this really difficult negotiation. I'm heading into this really difficult uh, performance review. I mean, I'm heading into a situation where we're going to be ready to let somebody go. To take 300 seconds and really put yourself in their shoes. To imagine how they see things. Again, you don't have to agree with it. Just imagine what it would be look like to look from their perspective. Feel that feeling. If you think that they might be frustrated, think of a time when you've been really frustrated and actually bring that feeling to your gut. And then that last step is really good if you can find the space to do it and say, look, I imagine you might be really frustrated. I was in a phone call once where I was really unhappy with a vendor who was doing this wrong. And just for one moment of lucidity, (laughs) just one, I caught myself and I thought, man, what is it like to be on the other side of the phone with me right now? And I didn't become any less upset, but I did say this. I bet it's really tough to be on the other end of the line with me right now because I'm obviously really unhappy with what we're getting. And, and I just imagine that I'm not the, it's not the easiest conversation. And in a moment, the conversation melted. Now, that didn't mean we still didn't have disagreements, but it was the first time in that conversation where we actually communicated. 
when I said, hey, now I've got way more stories about not <laughs> not doing it well. Many of them, many of them from home with my wife where I put on my engineering hat. She tells me how she's feeling and I am in solutions mode without connecting with where she's at. I know there's a very typical story about that male, feel, male female, but it's really true of me as an engineer. And people need to connect. We tell our kids recently, my two boys, we have four kids, my two boys are at each other way more than I wish they were. I'll send them to the table and say, look, you guys need to work this out. But first, I want you to hear and understand and feel, feel what he's feeling and vice versa. And you can't move on to a solution until you've taken a moment to do that. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to train them up in being more empathic than I am. I hope when they get to 48 years old, they're way more empathic than I am. But it's by doing things like this, there is some, there is some growth that happens back to, back to the doing. There's growth in doing. So how do you become more empathic? You practice being empathic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not super complicated. It's hard. Um, but the idea of taking something like a 300-second pause, and you institute that in your life. And we have people that will say to one another, we're in a small group of four, and we'll, we look at each other and say, hey, for the next 90 days, I'm going to use the 300-second pause three times a week. And then people just keep track of what happens. And once a week, they're saying, hey, here's what happened. Here's what I learned. Here's what I experienced. Here's where I succeeded. Here's where I failed. But the idea is they're putting it into practice. And whether they fail or succeed in that moment, they're attempting to be more empathic. They're attempting to be in somebody else's shoes. So that's an example with empathic. Now, before I go on to the next one, do you have any questions or thoughts that you want to throw in there on that? No, I think that's great. And again, we all have natural strengths and weaknesses, but at the same time, we want to work on our failures and our faults and get better. So you're self-aware and you're acknowledging, this is something I struggle with at home. And I struggle with this exact same one, but it's easier sometimes at work to be empathetic to me than it is mm -hmm. at home because mm -hmm. you just want to solve, you want to solve, you want to solve. Yeah. And you're like, you're my family, so I have more responsibility and I want you to get this. So don't yeah. feel like, I'm sure, t um, you know, Tim's failed, I failed, you failed, but don't quit. Keep working towards it. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you that we have the folks that we're working with, we pause once a quarter and do something called a codification. Codification's just a word for stepping back from what's happened over the last 90 days. It's like you're, you're, you're really close to a mosaic, but you're just step back from it and say, what's the big picture? What are the big themes that I'm seeing over the last 90 days? So we ask them a series of questions to help them step step back from that. And there are just so many times when people will, will realize that they didn't get it perfectly, but understanding that awareness is progress. Because before, you know, before you weren't necessarily aware, right? But now, even if I'm failing, at least now I'm aware that I'm failing and I want to continue to work at it, continue to get better at it. So that's, that's part of the, part of the process that we help people do. A lot of times you're caught up in the moment. Like you said, you're on that call. Yeah. There's only gonna be a small little window of sanity yeah. and there's only going to be maybe a small little even semblance of, you know, empathetic thought if you're upset. So yeah. how do you teach people to start listening to that and following that guide? So like you said, that person was totally disarmed on the phone. Your conversation yeah. changed to a good place. But between our pride and our anger and our sinful mm -hmm. side, we don't want to be empathetic a lot of times. We want to smash. <laughs> no, that's true. We want to be Hulk. That's true. 
Yeah, that's true. Well, the, the first thing is understanding what it is. And I find it lots of times. And that's why I kept saying you don't have to agree with them. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I think about empathy. That means um, I am I am with them in terms of I believe what they believe. I, my perspective is the same. No, it doesn't have to. But you want to get over there long enough to feel it. And that's the vulnerable part that we don't like about empathy, many of us. Um, you know, statistically, this is one of the things that, frankly, females are better than males. Statistically, they're better at empathy than males are. They have a leadership advantage on us in this, on average. Any particular male is a unique person, but on average, they're going to be better at this. And it, I mean, it creates better relationships. You get better results when you have better relationships. This is the efficiency in organizational life that happens because of who, not what. And we don't have to go that deep to begin to see how this actually works. And, and you mentioned at home a second ago, on those codifications that happen quarterly, I would say about a third of the stories that executives share with me are about things that happened at home, not things that happened at work. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's great because we're working on the whole of the person. So whether it's at work or it's at home, it doesn't matter to me because they're going to experience the benefit of that everywhere where any place that they're leading that's going to make them a more effective leader. So if I have a, a moment of becoming more empathic at home, then I'm becoming a more empathic person. One little step at a time, but I'm going to bring that more empathic person to the, the, to the workplace as well. So, um, so, so home stuff as well. Um, curi- curiosity. So we're talking about curiosity. This one's crazy simple. Credit here to Dr. Mary Shippey. She taught me this phrase. Oh, man, now we're going way back. 15 years ago at least. And it's a very, very simple phrase, and it's amazing what it opens up. And that phrase is this, tell me more about that. Now, some people feel like it becomes rote. They don't want to say that same phrase. There's a hundred different variations on that. Can you say a little more? Can you go a little deeper? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Can you, can you unpack that for me? There's a bunch of different ways, whatever you're comfortable with. But the concept of tell me more about that. Again, imagine a small group of people that are traveling, and and you'll hear that as a theme. We use community to help people grow and develop because we get to learn from each other and we need the accountability. So we use groups of three to four um, throughout our work. And so imagine, again, we're a part of a small group. We say, look, over the next 90 days, we're each going to use the phrase, tell me more about that 100 times. And weekly, we're just going to do a little 15-minute email to check in with each other, and then we do a big codification at the end. The idea of... When I am curious, I learn things, and it's not necessarily 180 degrees from what I thought, but it's five degrees different. 95% of the time when I use the phrase, tell me more about that, I learn something that I didn't know. It may not be the opposite, but it may be an expansion. Oh, I thought you were really excited about the new client, but now I'm understanding you're like ultra excited about the new client because you're expecting you're going to chance to not only make the sale, but do the work. I didn't realize that. I thought you were just excited about getting the commission for the sale, but you really want to be okay. That's information that we as le- we need that information as leaders to understand where our people are at. So, again, the idea is how do we become how do we strengthen these kinds of muscles within who we are? Is you practice doing it. So, I'm going to practice and be held accountable to how many times do I say tell me more about that? So, that's a couple of examples on the other focus side of things. In the inwardly sound side of things, let's go to self-aware. Okay. So I mentioned uh, Tasha Urich's research a little while ago, 10 to 15% of leaders are actually self-aware. Very scary statistic. Again, this doesn't have to be crazy complicated. But if you were to put together, 
a couple of questions. The first one is, what am I doing that I should continue to do? What am I doing that's really helpful and effective? Second question, what am I doing that I should change? What am I doing that's that's making us less effective, but it's not adding in a positive way? And take those two questions and pick five people that you're around on a regular basis and give them those questions ahead of time. Don't spring them on them. Say, I'd like to go to lunch. Here are these questions. In a couple of weeks, we'll get a date on the calendar. And I'd like to hear from you on these two questions. Now, for lots of people, this is like very scary because <laughs> I don't know that I want to hear the answer. But it's really important to hear both because it's really important for us to hear about the things we need to continue to do because that's actually really efficient. There's more ways to do something wrong than right. It's important that people tell us, hey, you're you're knocking out of the park. You know, I'll take a home example. You know, I notice that you are reading to our three-year-old every night, and I just think that that's so important. Well, I needed to hear that because maybe I didn't think that was that big of a deal. But my wife looks at it and says, man, that is top-notch. So it's important that we hear and take in the positive things we need to continue to do. Of course, we would say it's important to hear the other things as well. But if you were to just take a simple two-question survey, give it to somebody, give them a week or two to think about it, take them to lunch, listen, ask follow-up questions, do not defend. (laughs) Whatever you do, do not defend. Somebody's helping you at least see their perspective. Even if you don't agree with their assessment, they're letting you know how they see things. And that's helpful and valuable. And defend and so, doesn't mean explain. It means just listen. Like That's you know, a form of defense. I just want people to be you, clear. You no, know, it's true. I'm very, by the way, <laughs> defensiveness, also a problem for me. Um, again, we could bring witnesses. So, and, and it just, curiosity is the antidote to defense. Um, be curious when people say things that you don't agree with and not in the like, you know, I'm making a, it's a question, but I'm actually attacking you <laughs> now, like, like a genuineness. You can even combine the two. Tell me more about that. Uh, you think I'm really dropping the ball on our marketing plan. All right. Tell me more about that. Tell me where that's coming from. Um, there's so many different ways where that comes into play. We want to raise our self-awareness. We, we actually have to draw on another part of being principled, which is called being courageous. We have to be courageous. And, and we said it earlier, the further you go up in an organization, the more unlikely it is that you are self-aware. Because people have more to risk to tell you the truth, the more power you have. And that's just a fact of the power dynamic. That's how it works. So you have to work your tail off as a leader to get the truth about yourself because people are generally speaking are not going to volunteer it. It's not because they're not courageous and it's not because you're a bad person. It's because it's hard to speak truth to power. And so as a leader, you have to open that door. You got to kick it open. And if you ever shoot the messenger, you might as well forget getting good feedback after that. You cannot shoot the messenger. You cannot be defensive. You have to be curious. And you do want to give people spit. You don't want to spring these questions on people. You want to give them time to think about it. So that's a a very practical way to bring a greater level of self-awareness. So those are three examples. I mean, the truth is around all 11 of these things, We've, we've got probably on average seven, seven to eight to, in some cases, uh, we're getting ready to head into an attentive unit with a, with a group starting next week. We've got 17 different attentive exercises for them to work on. But the point is they don't have to be super complicated, but we do have to be committed to them. We do have to continue on even when we fail. They almost all require some type of courage. And we have to understand that what are we really working on here? 
We're not working on techniques. We're not working on tips and tricks. We're literally working on becoming more inwardly sound and others focused. And if we can stay focused on that, we will be addressing three quarters of what effective leadership is. Wow. Thank you so much, Tim. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you got a ton to think about and a ton of notes and a ton of self-awareness that you're like, okay, I need to really reevaluate at this point, right? (laughs) Myself included. So if you want, if somebody wants to reach out to you, Tim, and get a hold of you and ask questions or set up maybe a consulting session, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Great. So, um, so kind of mirroring the book title, the book title is the only leaders worth following. So if you go to, we'll put a link in the show notes to that book too. Great. Great. Yeah. So the link to go to is the T H E only leaders.com. And if you go there, um, you can, you can contact through that contact us through that website. We also have an email list where we put out free content. We're getting ready here, um, later this year to put out a discussion guide for free for our email list that goes with the book. And then we also have uh, a special promo code offer there for your listeners for the Remarkable People podcast. Nice. So if you, um, if you go to that site, theonlyleaders.com, and you enter your information, email, first name, last name, and if you put RPP in the promo code, um, if we receive that from you before the end of the year, we're recording this in mid-2020. So if we get that from you before the end of 2020, we will give you $500 off any of the journeys. If you decided to go on a journey with us, wow, we have journey, journey groups that are starting in February of 21. And there's a variety of ways that those play out. Sometimes we have people come to us. We know COVID's changed things. So sometimes, sometimes we do those groups virtually. But if you decided to join any one of our, uh, one of our who not what journeys, we'll give you uh, $500 off for being a listener of RPP. So just put that in the promo code RPP. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. And to the listeners, enjoy that. I hope you take the journey, take some pictures, take notes, and uh, let us know how it went. I might actually Absolutely. try to get out there for one of these. Come on. Come on. That would be awesome. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Well, Tim, it's been a true pleasure. And I do not want to miss anything. And I don't want you to have to feel like you need to stretch it out either. Is there anything else you think significant for our listeners? for yourself, anything that we missed today? Because I'm so thankful, man. This has been great. I've personally learned a lot, but is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap it up for the day? I would just say it's worth it. I mean, think about all the places you lead. Think about all the places you influence, whether it's at work or it's at home. I remember I was given a talk right after our oldest son was born. And, um, you know, I put, I put his picture up on the screen and he was months old at that point. And I just said to the group, you know, he deserves the best leader that I can be. He deserves that. He's worth that. And the fact of the matter is, it's probably easy for us to say that about our kids and our family members. But it's also true for the people at work. I mean, there is very little in life that has as profound an impact on the quality of our lives as the leaders we follow. I mean, they have a chance to make our life feel valuable and meaningful, or they have a chance to make it hell, honestly. I mean, they have so much influence. And so because of the impact that leadership has, both at the bottom line and at the kitchen table when you're talking with your family at night after you're home from work, whether at work or at home, doing the hard work of becoming a well-developed who 
no matter how difficult it is at times. It is worth it. It will yield a dividend many times over. And I encourage everybody to make it an important part of their own development as a leader. It is worth it, even though it's hard. Amen. Great words of wisdom. Tim, thank you for being here today, brother. You truly are a remarkable man. I'm honored to call you a friend. Hopefully we get to see you again soon and maybe we'll yes. we'll dive into a follow-up episode down the road in season three or four. How's that sound? That would be great. We need to we need to get you a part of some of the work we're doing and perhaps we can we can make it down and then you'll have your own stories to share on this journey as well. That's it, man. I love it. I love it very much. So listen, if you're listening today, if you like I said, check out the show notes links to everything we talked about even a picture of tim's mom and dad's gonna be in the show notes <laughs> i gotta get that for you right? yep. we got um if you have any questions for tim or myself you shoot them across we will do our absolute best to serve you and help you uh share this podcast with your friends and family let them be able to take this knowledge and become better leaders as well because as you can see not just america but globally what do we need now other than God, more than strong leaders, right? Yeah. How many people do we have in Congress that are spineless and in it just for the money? They're in it for whatever political vote they can get. We need leadership. And you may not be the CEO of a company. You could be the janitor. But if you have character and integrity and leadership, it's going to challenge people and you're going to make a difference in this world. So absolutely. Absolutely. Tim, thanks for being here. As the listener, we love you. Thanks for being here. Um, if you have any comments, shoot them across, give us a review and a rating. We'd love it and be honored by it. But this is Dave Pasqualone. This is the Remarkable People Podcast. This is season two, episode 36, the Tim Spiker story. Thanks again, Tim. Wow. What a great episode, right? Thank you for listening. And thank you, Tim Spiker, for being our remarkable guest. At this time, though, Intern Casey, tell us about next week's remarkable episode. Next week on the Remarkable People podcast, we have the absolutely remarkable story of Echo Huang. She came here from China with only $800 to her name. Tune in to hear how she turned this meager $800 into a financial empire worth $150 million. Learn how she did it and how you can too. This has been Intern Casey. From the Remarkable People Podcast, signing off. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.